I have the same mix setup for everybody. I use parallel bussing extensively. So one and two is three through six oh nine is drum bus. Fatso, I use it, I call it the crush bus. Five and six is a three three six oh nine for music minus bass. Seven and eight, I have a GML compressor, background vocals, lead vocals. That is the coolest piece of gear ever that I know nothing about. I just happen upon a setting that works for me and I leave it. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by Sonarworks, helping you get the most out of your mixes by correcting the sound of the speakers and headphones in your studio so you get your mix right the first time. Are you sick of doing multiple mixes and still you can't get the low end right? How would it feel to have badass bass the first time? Get a 21-day free trial at sonarworks.com. Are you ready to rock the perfect mix? This episode is sponsored by OWC, Other World Computing, which you can find at owc.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and use Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac. The speed to create, the capacity to dream. Find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Vance Powell, a six-time Grammy Award-winning producer, engineer, and mixer, whose impressive list of credits includes Chris Stapleton, L. King, The Raconteurs, The Dead Weather, The White Stripes, Arctic Monkeys, Wolf Mother, Seasick, Steve, Black Prairie, Tanarowin, Jeff the Brotherhood, who are uh, neighbors here, actually, right. among many others. Powell recently won two Grammy Awards in 2018 for mixing and engineering Chris Stapleton's From a Room, Volume 1, for Best Country Album, and mixing and engineering various songs on C.C. Winans' Let Them Fall in Love for Best Gospel Album. He was also nominated for mixing Robert Randolph and the Family Band's Got Soul, Best Contemporary Blues Album. Vance is actually joining us for the second time on the podcast today. If you want to hear more about who Vance is and how he got started, then please go check out episode two. Vance was one of the- Episode uh, two. Yeah, the earliest adopters <laughs> of the show. It was awesome. Today, we're going to dive right into the topic of producing, recording, and mixing. And I'll ask some questions about recent productions for Vance over at his private studio, Sputnik Sound, where he shares with Mitch Dane, also previously on the podcast, episode 140. Mm -hmm. So go check that out as well. Please welcome Vance Powell back to Recording Studio Rockstars. Vance, my man, are you hey, ready to rock, dude? Hey, man. Hey, Rockstars. What's up? Dude, awesome to have you here. Sorry Thanks. I had to keep you waiting. It was a bit of a, a rush and scramble oh, this morning, get, dropping you know, my daughter off traffic. at the orthodontist. It's traffic and kids. Come on. It's no yeah. big deal. Nashville's traffic is getting uh, heavier and heavier and heavier, yep. isn't it? Yeah, people moving in. You know, people, nobody's moving out. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, 
So uh, do do give us a, a brief introduction to who you are, though, again, and um, you know, tell us about your studio. Well, my name is Vance Powell. I'm a recording engineer. I'm 54 years old. I, I like walks on the beach. And there's no beach here, but no, no, you know, uh, I'm, I've been doing this a long time. I spent, um, the first 20 years of my career on the road and in the studio. It was kind of a, you know, one of those few people who could, you know, mix a show and mix a record and fly a PA and record a band. And, you know, uh, it was sort of a thing that just kind of happened from the fact I wanted to be in the studio, but, um, I did, there was a little studio in my hometown and I, I basically just learned enough mixing live sound that I, I went in there and acted like I knew what I was doing sort of, and got a job. And, and then, and, and basically um, kind of my whole career is a, a long list of me just bullshitting my way into a gig. Good. You know, I, I, my first Nashville job, I got, I got a gig with Tammy Wynette doing monitors. I had never done it before ever. And uh, I mean, other than just, you know, like in clubs, you know, you like, you, you know, I used to do monitors by, I would just put a 50 foot mic cable on, I'd walk back to the console, turn it up, walk up, listen to it, walk back to the console, you know, like yeah. that was doing monitors. So uh, to suddenly be in front of a seven piece Nashville country band with a legendary star uh, was a, was a deal, but I just bullshitted my way in and smiled a lot and acted like I knew what I was doing and, and got the gig. That's and, awesome. uh, and, um, you know, maybe they were more desperate than I knew. I don't know, maybe, but it doesn't matter. It worked out. So groovy. So, uh, you now have a studio in Berry Hill called Sputnik Sound. You've I been, do. this is, uh, I guess, is this the second location? This right? is the second location. Well, it's the third Third Actually, location. The original location of Sputnik was in uh, Steve Mason, the guitar player from Jars of Clay. It was in his basement. And it was a thing that he just made, I I, I think, probably to get away from uh, – hmm, let, let, let me think about this. I think he wanted to get away from his ex-wife, to be <laughs> honest with you. And uh, and he built, this little he built this little studio in the basement, and uh, Mitch Dane was their, their friend – um, and, and my friend, I, I kind of got to meet him through them and, uh, Mitch had some gear and he had a studio at his house and this studio was going to sort of fit both of their interests better. Steve didn't have any gear, but he had this room he just built and Mitch had gear. He just didn't really have a room that was really sort of built to be a studio. So, so Mitch moved his gear in and. Uh, they came to me in 2000. Is that right? Yeah. And what about of, you? Did you have a lot of gear at that point or were you just, I had, a, I had a lot of gear on the road, but I had like, I had like, like sort of live sound specific, not specific. Definitely. I mean, like I had space echoes. I had right. like, um, uh, Lexicon primetime. I had a bunch of old analog gear, not like a bunch of compressors and things like that. I did have a couple, but nothing super recording centric. Um, I had a whole rig, big rack out on the road of space echoes. And uh, I did have some lexicon reverbs and, you know, some things like that, that I had on the road with me, but um, I didn't move any of that stuff into Sputnik. Uh, the, the guys came to me, the jars guys asked me, I was on the road with them, was touring with them as a front house engineer. And we'd been doing all kinds of recordings for my whole time there. We'd been recording things in showers and, you know, uh, 
arenas and they would play, they would have songwriting demos. They'd have a demo and they'd just play the band on stage. And then I'd just give them a CD and that'd be their demo from front of house, you know? Nice. Um, and then I recorded them for a whole bunch. They had in the shower and drums in the shower and then lethal Kai digital multi-track machines. Oh yeah. And we'd take a couple mics back there and, you know, record in the shower and stuff like that. But, uh, they asked me to do a record in 2000, the end of 2000, I wanted to do a Christmas record and that Christmas record ended up being an 11-month project called The 11th Hour. And, um, Mitch worked on about the first five months of it, four or five months of it. And, uh, and he left and went off. He had, a, he had a thing he did every summer. He spent the summer in Colorado. So, so he spent all summer in Colorado while we finished the record. And then we so finished. five months of Christmas. Yeah, but it, it, the funny thing was we recorded a Christmas song the first day and never did another Christmas record song. <laughs> So the Christmas record was a joke. We never even did it. We like one Christmas idea, and that was it. Now, as what I remember learning is that uh, you know when you're doing Christmas songs in Nashville or anywhere, they, that happens in July, right? It happens in July. That's exactly. And right. And that's how you get a song out by Christmas. Uh huh. That's exactly right. right. They were trying to beat the deal because they they had a record booked with uh, Dennis Herring, uh, oh, who had yeah. produced the record before them, and yeah. and Dennis not, uh, I would say probably. Sometime in January, they were supposed to start in March. Sometime in January, Dennis bailed to do a Counting Crows record. The funny thing was, Counting Crows wanted to make a record, but their record label wasn't interested in the slightest in another Counting Crows record. So come around the time they were supposed to start this record, the record label said, no, you can't record. So Dennis suddenly was like, hey, I want to do your record. By that point, we were just far enough along into this process that they didn't want to go back. They were enjoying their own thing, yeah. not didn't want to jump into Dennis's world, so to speak. Um, Dennis has a great studio. I don't know if he still has it. Uh, Sweet Tea down in I Oxford, think Mississippi. Uh, I, I think he, Dennis moved back to LA, but okay. I, he, he may still be there. Yeah, I remember uh, spending a week working yeah. on on some music there once. Yeah, um, very. Did cool. you work with Dennis? No, no, no. We were just actually camped out in his studio. We have uh, some other guys cool. I was working with, Nielsen Hubbard here from Nashville. Yeah. I remember I him. Um, well, cool. Well, so let's see. Uh, let's let's talk about some of the stuff that you're doing now. Um, you know, Sputnik is you know three iterations in, and you have right. this amazing facility. Thank you. Um, I've interviewed you there. I've interviewed Mitch Dane mm -hmm. there, um, and uh, I've been to some pretty good parties there and had some really great fried chicken. We, as well, we do. You know? We have good Nam parties, and uh, and uh, we do have. We put on a really nice Christmas party. Yeah. Um, and you, I, I, you know, having that experience and having that studio and the facility, it's really given you the opportunity to play every role of making a record, producing, yeah, well, that, recording, that's, the, that's kind of the goal, I think, in this business. I mean, um, I, 10 years ago, I would never thought about producing a record. I would have thought about it and I would have been bullshitting my way into, into doing it. And probably 10 years ago, I probably, I have produced a few records in the last 20 years and, and I think really only in the last three or four years was did I ever feel like I was competent enough and confident enough in my own abilities to actually be able to pull it off at any level. Not, I mean, you know, I mean, you say at any level, every, every band is different. I yeah. mean, I've, I, you know, I've gone through having to fire drummers. Now I've had to gone through, um, why is it always the drummer? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, especially with bands, you know, it's, it's always hard to do that. Like you never hear stories about somebody firing the mandolin player. No, I had to fire the drummer and the bass player. Same, same record, 
more or less kind of on the same day. And I didn't have to fire the bass player. Just the bass player decided that he was, he was going to play politics. Mm. He showed up for the record with a upright and then told me he didn't play electric. Mm. And I was like, well, well, we're not making a throwback record. So you're going to play electric. Well, I don't play electric. Like, okay, well, I'll get somebody who does. How about that? And I was like, well, you know, I suppose if I, I suppose I could practice a little bit. Like, well, yeah, maybe you should. So it it ended up that I had to replace a bunch of tracks because he wasn't any good at it. Um, well, we should the talk upright about only works. The upright only works, and I mean, the only it, it's a stylistically the st- This record wasn't any sort of retro throwback thing. It wasn't at all that. Yeah. Um, you know, and it didn't make any sense to have upright bass on it. It just didn't. And I just don't know how how somebody could go into this record with the demos that we had, listening to it and think, oh, I'll just play upright on this whole thing. Uh, so it was it was a little bit of a struggle. But you know what? It, it worked out. I mean, it was it was fine. Yeah. Uh, I've had um, in, incredible experiences. The Clutch record was just incredible. Uh, that was the record I did earlier this year. Clutch is a you know, pretty good sized band. And um, they were all so nice, super cool. The drummer and I went around for the first couple of days on the drum sound that, that I was hoping for. I'm glad you brought that up. And, I to ask you and, about that. and what was funny was it was getting to a point where we were kind of coming to an impasse. And he came in one morning, he goes, I know exactly what you're wanting now. He goes, I know exactly what you're wanting. Okay, we're going to change this head. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Because I was looking for a certain a certain bass drum sound for, for the band. And um, he, he nailed it. Yeah. It was perfect. But this was a deal where, okay, I have to change. He had to change everything the way he played and how he set his drums up to get this sound. And I had to sort of say, okay, cool. I'll have to move some, I have to change some things that I'm doing to make, to make this thing that you're okay with work. And, and it was great because when it, when we landed, it landed, yeah. it was right on. So, um, you know, that's kind of one of those things. Um, well, can I ask you some questions? Yeah, about sure. that? So I made a note about the drums on, on the, uh, book of bad decisions, mm-hmm. the clutch record, um, and I, and I just noticed that there's this really cool, they're very active. There's like a lot of action in the sound. You mm-hmm. really hear the snares and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And it's it seems to be everywhere in the drum sound. Well, I like all the really rattly cool stuff. You like, like what? Which? Like, I like all the rattly stuff. I like everything moaning. I like, I like all the drums tuned open. I like them tuned high. I like, uh, except for the kick drum. I want the kick drum to be t- so, like in my mix world that I see, and this is, I can tell you right now, it's 100% from mixing rock and roll bands. The kick drum is the lowest instrument. Mm-hmm. And then the bass. Now, if I was mixing R&B bands or funk bands or had gone through that, that is not how it works. Or soul or any sort of thing. That is not the deal. The bass is the, the, bass is the deal. That's the thing that sits down on the bottom. But I get that. I totally get it. Um, I just don't really do those records. So, so, you know, because I don't do that kind of stuff, I don't have to worry about it too much. But to me, that, that bass drum should be like part of the thing that drove JP, that John Paul, the drummer for Clutch Crazy, was to get this sound. We had his batter head 
all the way loose. Really? So just paper. And then the front head tuned way up. So, so it was a very short attack with a note from the front head. And is this a mashing batter that stays on the head or is well, it one that needs to bounce off? Well, sometimes he bounces it, sometimes he doesn't. But, but because the head's tuned so low and it's just slack, bouncing it doesn't actually make a note. Whereas if you bounce a tuned up, the back, the batter tuned up and you bounce it, it goes boom. You know, that's, that's, that's a whole nother sound. Right. I love that sound too. But like what I would do is I would have multiple kick drums and each one, like one would be right, very dry, pap, pap, pap. One would be boom, boom, boom. One would be boom, boom, boom. One would be bang, 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 like tuned up really high. Yeah. But the front head, like really super paper thin, shiny plastic, plastic head tuned way up. You know, and and all those sounds are all totally cool by me as long as they sit at the bottom of the mix. Yeah. And then the bass right above it, and the snare right above that, and then guitars above that, and the vocals in the middle of all that. That's sort of how I hear things. That's 100% for mixing live sound. Because you've 100%. just had experience. You've just done so many different well, you just, musicians you have and drums. All these, you have all these 18-inch speakers in live sound. <laughs> you know, if you're playing a big show, you have all, this, all these 18s, and you have all this sub-low. And it's like, okay, cool. You turn the kick drum up and you go, great. Now let me turn the subs up. All right, cool. I feel that concuss my chest, right? That, yeah. ooh, that yeah. thing that takes your breath away. Yes, I want that. So that's <laughs> what I want. That's what, and that was what I was wanting, going for. And, and to, for JP, and for JP's, you know, credit, he, he, he got it. And then once he got it, he embraced it. And that was really cool. And then the rep beyond that, it was like, you know, we, I was like, what snare drum are you going to play on this one? You know, I'm a, I'm a change of snare drum every song. Guy. Right. That being said, I just did a record where we didn't change the snare drum at all, the whole record. Um, and that was, I mean, not really for any reason other than we found a real, we've, we've got this really cool snare sound and, and the snare sound wasn't important in the record. So two questions about that. Um, you described the sound of drums coming off the stage. You described, mm -hmm. you know, searching for kick drum sounds in the studio. Uh, what are the similarities between the way the drums need to be and what and how they sound for what works great on a live stage versus the studio? Are they are they often similar? Or are they well, no, they're different? totally different because the in the studio the, that drum has to have some low end. It has to make low end. Right. It has to be the subs. It has to make that sound. Live, the PA makes it. The PA and, you know, subs and all that. That makes the sound of it. So most live drums, uh, what I hear, most guys, it's super dry. Pap, 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 yeah. pap, pap. And then they can put all that boom, that deep stuff in the sub and because they can just make that. We mm. can't make that. We can make it, but but we got to jump through a bunch of hoops to do it. Um you know, I remember when Subkicks came out. I mean, when I, mine was original NS10 woofer Subkick thing, I was like, yeah, this is great. And then I sort of was like, it's great, but it's kind of fake. And it's late always. Yeah. yeah. It's slow. It's a very slow developing thing. The drum doesn't sound like that. This is a, this is, this is something else. Yeah. It's cool. If the drum has no low end, yes, I have been known to throw one on to get that, but I'm going to do everything in my power now to try to get that sound from the drum first. And then I'll, and then I won't mic the drum up close. So I'll mic the drum back a foot and a half. With fewer mics. 
Uh, I usually use two. I usually use a FET and a D12. Um, and I they, put them side by side. They're side by side. So side you get the side. same time. And- yeah. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, look, there, there's no rules. Sometimes right. I'll put right. the D12 in the hole. If there's a hole. But normally I like tr- kick drums without a hole. You know? And again, I like all the rattly shit. Yeah, well, I you, like I like all of that. You you talk about you know the um, the drum sounding late when you're using that uh, mm-hmm. that the sub mic, and uh, I've noticed well, that. Well, the, the note develops late. Yeah, is the deal. The kick drum goes pat, and it goes. It's behind it. Yeah, and 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 that's cool as long as you can, as long as it's okay to deal with. The problem is, is that people. First thing, the first thing you want to do, you don't, in my, this is my opinion, in my humble opinion, don't ever try to align drums. Right. Don't ever try to align phase. Don't ever try to use something that puts the drums exactly like in phase and all that stuff. Don't ever do that because that's not the sound of drums. That's not what they sound like. They're, the, the fact that certain things are out of time and blah, 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 and all that stuff, you know, the kick drum and the snare drum, you know, the, the, it's, you know, all that stuff is the sound we want. It's not the sound that, you know, we're trying to make this perfect, you know, fucking stupid Steely Dan drum sound. You know what I mean? I mean, right. that's, that, that's boring as shit. Just use a bunch of samples, you know, just use a bunch of samples and get a drummer to play hi-hats. That's what Stevie Dan did, basically. You know, that's Separate exactly what out. they did. They used a Wendell. They had their own, all these sounds and they had the drummer play and then they just replaced them and then had them recut all the hi-hats and stuff. It's mm-hmm. very, whatever. Great. That's easy. Don't do that. Um, um, you talked about snare drums and choosing mm-hmm. snare drums for songs. What does that process look like? Is it something where you hear the drum in the room and you know it's going to be the right snare? Or is there also just a guessing game if you don't know until you put it onto the drum well, set? I have, a, I have a weird thing about snare drum and I think... First of all, to me, the snare drum is a note. It's not a, it's not a, uh, it's not a, it's not like a percussion thing. It's more like a note. And that means that to me, the snare drum needs to fill a space in the rhythm. So um, if you listen back through some of the records that I've done, you're going to notice that the snare drum length the amount of time the snare drum is creating sound fits into a, 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 an area of the tempo that I like. So in other words, like, like I like it when the kick drum goes boom, bow, boom, bow, bow being the snare, boom, smack, you know, boom. Instead of like, Bap. Now, right. get, don't get me wrong. That's super cool for some things. Boots and pants and boots. And, you know, I mean, right. it's super cool for some things. But I like it to kind of go boom, bam, boom. And this long sort of stretched out note. I don't stretch it out with anything special. I just try to get the drummer and I to tune the drum. Uh, it's funny. I just saw on Facebook, somebody's going around some meme that's like, you know, tuning the snare to the tonic, you know, who does that? That's stupid it's not a bad idea. You know, it's not a bad idea at all. Sure. Why not? Or, or at least tune it to some harmonic that's in the key because I want to use that as a note. I want it to be long yeah. and, and big, you it's know, really a, big. And, you know, I want it to have length so that it makes, it's a drum. It goes, if you take the stairs off, it goes boom, 
Yeah. So you put the snares on, the snares actually make it go boom, you know, psh, create an, an amount of length. And if you tune the drum correctly, you can get it so it, the drum plays pretty long. Same thing with toms. Like, like, like super dead toms are cool for some things. It's, it's a great thing. But man, I, you know, I kind of like tuned up high, almost like jazz, you know, boo, that kind of, you know, bang with the all open, you know, uh, uh, coated heads, really barking. And, and, and you know why? Because it's easy to make them cut through the mix. If right. they're all tubby, it's just low just end. That low just, end. It's just, it's just farty shit in your mix. Oh, yeah. Great. It's awesome. Now, that being said, there's a time and a place for that. And there's a sound for that. Well, it sounds like you spend a lot of time really working with the drum set before you even, I mean, you haven't even talked hardly I, I, about mic I wish yet. I could say that. I wish I could say it. It just, it depends on the drummer. Yeah. Like if, like if I've got a record coming in, if I'm producing a record and I have a drummer coming in that I don't know, I'll call like Paul Simmons over Blackbird and I'll just hire him for you know, four hours to come over and go through my drum set and get it, get it sounding good and getting some options. Yeah. So, you know, get the, get the kick drum sound really good. Get the snares, get these five snares sounding really good. You know, I, I end up using about four different snare drums for all pretty much all the records. Now on the clutch record, JP had a bunch of his own, but he used quite a few of mine too. Can we ask you what those are? Well, um, mine are a sugar percussion, uh, cherry stave snare. Super awesome. Jefferson Schellenberg makes these, he has sugar percussions, makes these incredible drums. Cool. And um, I have a, I have a 47 Leedy kit, uh, Gold Sparkle, and I have the original snare drum from that. It's amazing. It's just a little uh, wood uh, Gold Sparkle wrap. It has the original Gold Sparkle wrap. Um, and then I've got a 63 Ludwig and I've got a, um, a, a, a few others, not all of them are vintage. Uh, some of them, one of the coolest sounding ones is this uh, ludicrously cheap Ludwig, whatever this Ludwig starter kit is. Um, that was Meg White's. Um, oh, cool. They used it on a hardest button to button. They bought 10 Ludwig drum kits, exactly the same. Again, they're just a starter kit, red drum kits. And they stacked them up and made this Jim Jarmusch did this really cool stop motion thing. It wasn't Jim Jarmusch, that's not right. Somebody made this really great stop motion thing. And one and all those kits were just in Jack's uh, uh, warehouse. Oh, they were purchased for they the were video production. They were purchased for yeah. the video. And, yeah. and I asked Jack, I go, hey, man, will you sell me one of those? And he goes, no, but I'll give you one. <laughs> and they were still in the original boxes. They had taken, they had used them and then taken them all apart and put them back in the boxes. So they'd just taken the bottom heads off, stacked all the toms inside, and put them inside the bass drum and then, and then uh, basically just put the, it was just in the box. And so it's a super cheap Ludwig metal snare. It's like a six inch snare. Does it sound better in the box? Uh, <laughs> it didn't, it made no sound whatsoever in the box, but in the cardboard box. But yeah, uh, and it sounds great. Just kind of tune it up high and it just makes all kinds of really bad overtones and it's really great now what about um an acrylate or a super i have an acrylate yep yep, i have both of those yep you know uh one of my favorite drummers i ever worked with uh um bobby lloyd hicks which only a few people in the world will know but bobby lloyd hicks pick of the woody sticks um he passed away a couple years ago um he's an amazing drummer 
um, played with uh, a lot of bands, but he was from Springfield, Missouri, back where kind of I'm from, my adopted second hometown. And, um, but like he played with NRBQ for quite a while and Dave Alvin and just this beautiful, fantastic man, one of the just great singer and drummer. He had a whole deal. He had carpal tunnel in his hand pretty bad. And so he played, uh, it's hard to describe this without uh, making this motion so Lidge can see it, but he would play flat and he'd, he'd tape a towel on his right upper thigh and then he would hit the snare as a rim shot flat with his with his hand while playing hi-hat. And his hand hits his leg. And his hand would hit his leg. Yeah. Well, let me see. Hold it. I'm getting this wrong. Yeah, that's right. And he, uh, it's, I'm sorry, it was his left hand. And he would hit this on this hand. Yeah. And what he did with his acrylite was he put a pinstripe on it. So that's a thick hit. And then he would tighten as tight as he could with this drum key. And then he would use his sticks to tighten it about another four turns with the two, with two sticks as a torque. And it would get, it would just, I would be like, oh my God, thing's going to explode. And it was amazing sounding. And strangely, he never wore it out. Like his whole time. Maybe he wasn't hitting it that hard. Well, he was hitting it flat. So he was getting this great rim shot out of it. But I don't think he was really hitting it very hard. I got to really think about how he was playing here. So, yeah, he was playing like like this. So he was on his left thigh of the towel. Yeah, yeah. So And, so I mean, if he had carpal tunnel, it, it probably meant he didn't want to yeah, hold he, it. Yeah, he didn't really want to hold it very hard. Be so, gentle but, it. man, that thing sounded good. So uh, I thought at one point, oh, I'm going to do the same thing. And, you know, it's funny. I did it, and uh, it didn't sound like his. Right. It's a, it's a musician and the instrument. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. Um, Go figure. You know, as a producer, though, you know, you you make sure that you at least have some options. And as a studio, you've got some drums around and stuff mm-hmm. like that, which is cool. Um, I have. T- I've, I'm not a drummer. I have five, six, seven kits now. But you love recording them. <laughs> I do. You know, and, and I like being like, oh, hold it. You know, that floor tom on this song, you're going to ride that floor tom. And so because you ride it, I'm going to dryer floor tom. I'm not going to get one that goes boom, 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 boom. I'm going to get right. one that goes tum, 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 yeah. tum. Or not, you know, that brushy thing, the stick on a powdered head, you know, instead of a boom, boom. Yeah. You know, now if he goes, bam, boom, you know, that thing, I want it to go so do you I've sometimes gotta, mic up a, a tom for a floor for riding and a floor for the fills and the no, same kit. No, no, I no, I probably yeah. should, but I don't. Keep it simple. And I, I usually on the floor tom I use a top and bottom mic. Okay, because yeah, the top. floor tom is the most important drum that needs that. If you if you just put your hand on the bottom and hit the top, you'll see what the bottom head's doing. So you should really mic the top and bottom. Now the rack tom, no, not so much. Yeah. Rack time always seems to speak really easily in the overhead. It's because it's too. tuned up so high. Yeah. And the other thing is I use a mic out front. I call it my front mic. <laughs> Go figure. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it's it's maybe four feet in front of the drum. But if I'm sitting behind the drum set, I'm looking at the tom, I can't see the mic. It's kind of over there, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like, it's kind of like the bottom snare, front head of the kick drum, bottom head of the rack tom. Mic. Four feet out in front of the kit. Yeah, something like that. It's a ribbon. What, what kind of mics? Oh, it's, it's a, a Coles. Yeah, it's like a. It's actually a weird Coles. It's a forty thirty. It's a. It's a little lollipop Coles. They just started building. I bought a pair of them, and they're really nice. They're a little brighter than a uh, regular Coles. 
Um, and they'll yeah, take higher SPL. Is good. Um, what about, um, let's say we've got a ribbon, we've got a Coles, or we've got just some ribbon, and we want to use it in a capacity like that. What do we need to know about the mic pre or EQ that's needed or compression to get it to be, you know, not too dark and lumpy sounding? Well, first of all, you know, the thing about ribbons that ribbons hear like you do. So what you should do is you should lay on the floor while the drummer's playing for short periods of time because it's loud and just listen to what's going on down there and just find the spot that just kind of works for what you want. I, I'm looking for some fill out of that. And I'm also looking for that sound that happens like out in front of the kick drum. That's not the kick drum sound, but it is mm -hmm. that, that low end, that thing, that, that air moving feel that doesn't happen when you mic, mic them up close. Yeah. And it's interesting. I find you move around the room while the drums are playing, you'll discover there are places where you just get the sustain of the low end Absolutely. and other places it totally doesn't exist. Absolutely. So do you find that you're often positioning that, that room mic or that low end catching mic in new and different places in your studio? No, or does not really. No, I've kind of found it. You've spots. kind of found it. Yeah. So it's okay. I mean, that's the beauty of being in one, in one room, you know, yeah. uh, the beauty of not being in one room is that sometimes you have to improvise. And you have to kind of like, oh, you're okay. always listening. Yeah, you, you have to figure figure it out. I just did. Um, uh, it's 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 public now, but I just did the new Stray Cats record. Oh, cool! And we cut, we recorded and mixed the whole record in seven days. Now, how do you record and mix a record in seven days? Well, basically, it's the Stray Cats. You've got a drummer that plays standing up. You have an upright bass player, and you have one of the greatest guitar players on the face of the planet playing guitar, and so. They cut all the tracks live. The original goal was to do it without headphones, but um, Brian's guitar amp kind of screwed that up. So we did it at Blackbird. I I set them all up kind of in a line, kind of this thing that's, that I've been talking about forever. It's a Glenn Johns thing. And they set them all up in a line and then allowed them to see each other. That was the important part. And um, and they just played. And we, we cut the record and then... Uh, I went in to rough mix, the, just to, to spend a day to rough mix the record. Um, one of the things that Brian wanted, he wanted it to sound like this Gene Vincent record that he really loved. And we listened to it. And basically what we figured out is, look, they recorded this record with maybe three mics. Maybe. And then they ran those mics to the tape machine, but they also ran them through another tape machine. And they just had slap echo on the whole thing. So we did a test and kind of, I kind of put slap on the whole mix and he loved that. Now he wanted to do the vocals later. We did the vocals as an overdub. Um, he loved that. So, so there's this sound that happens when you do that and it's sort of like a room sound and it's kind of weird, like a, it's almost like a gate reverb because it's going, the snare's going, ka -ka, ka -ka. so it goes, and then kind of cuts off. So the snare is like even longer than normal. So it sounds like. Because it's a double. It's like because it's a double. Yeah. Itself, yeah. And so it's just 15 nips, just straight 15 nips. Cause that's what Gene Vincent would have had. They would 15 nips, you know, seven and a half is way too slow. They didn't have 30. It was 15 nips. And uh, we just put that on kind of a, a, more of the drums than, than other stuff. Brian plays through a space echo. So that was his own thing. And then when I cut the vocals, I cut all the vocals with the slap echo. So um, I just recorded a um, two tracks 
And actually, it's funny. I should have just done a, a stereo track in Pro Tools and then just had just set the level, right, right. you know, and just put them in mono. Yeah. But I do that all the time with distortion. I'll, I'll, if I cut a track where I want the vocal distorted, I'll, I'll cut the left side or the right side clean and the left side distorted, and I just blend them together. Yeah, just pan it to the middle I and just pan use, it to use the like middle. the trim plug into yeah, adjust. Yeah, I'll either use the want. trim, yeah, later when mixing. But but as we're recording, I'll I'll just use the fader on my desk to get the amount I want. And then later, if we need to turn up or down, we can. And um, that I, allows you to do a bunch of cool things. One, if you have to edit it, it all moves together. If if for some reason you're with an act that needs to get tuned, it'll tune together. Whereas if mm. you start splitting them apart, they can they can get a little wonky. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of really good reasons to use a stereo track in mono. We went in to do rough mixes. I rough mixed the whole record. And then Brian's like, I love it. Like, you love it? Like, yeah, I love it. We're done. Like, really? Because that was, I just, just put all the faders at zero and hit record while talking to the producer. Yeah. Like that's, you know, we did the whole record, 13 songs in one day. Basically, we recorded the record and I rough mixed it in seven days. And, yeah. and it was great. That's awesome. Just leave it at that. We're going to, I've got a couple more days of work on it, but it's very simple. It's very stripped down. Um, it sounds just like the Stray Cats. They cut it live. Um, there's We cut a couple takes together, but I mean, we did it like we were recorded on tape. Can we talk um, or can you explain a little more what that Glenn Johns lining everybody up? Yeah, so I just read in Glenn Johns' book where he talked about uh, he would put the drums and then he'd line all the guitar amps up with the kick drum so that all the music is sort of happening in the same plane Yeah, in time. And then however you mic it, they're all still in the same plane. In other words, sound is traveling at the speed of sound, whether the kick drum and the guitar, whether they're, you know, going out to a microphone, a, a room mic, they're going to arrive at the same time. Whereas if you set up where the guitar is pointing at the drums and then the bass is pointing out another way, yeah, you can record all that, but it's not all like exactly in the same place. Yeah. The other thing that happens, and, and I've done this, I mean, I do this all the time, is that you don't get a lot of bleed, man. There's, I mean... You know, you ne like if you put if you put a guitar amp. Okay, so here's my extreme story. Um, there's a band here in Nashville. They just actually played their last gig called Diarrhea Planet. They're fucking oh, yeah. awesome. Good. I was hoping we get to right. talk about them too. And uh, I did their last record. We set up drums and four half stacks in my room, in my tracking room. Four half stacks and drums. Four different guitar players. Four different guitar players. And, and they played without headphones. They just jammed in front of their amps. And I just put some baffles in between them. And then, and that was it. And when, when we solo, start soloing tracks, you listen to the guitars, there's no drums on it. There's no guitar next door to it on it. You listen to the drums, strangely, there's not a lot of drums on it. The only, or guitars, the only, the only thing that's on it, not drums, there's a lot of drums. The only <laughs> thing is the room mics just become a sound of the room. Yeah. They're not drum rooms. It's the room room. Yeah, it's everything. And so there's a cool cohesive thing that happens there with that. Um, so I've been doing that for a while. Um, so that, to make something like that work, it has also a lot to do with matched volumes, right? You can't oh, have one thing that's loud and one thing that's to, quiet. Yeah, right? now you have to fight with volume. Um, I did this uh, Tyler Bryant record a little while back, Tyler Bryant and Shakedown, and I love them. 
we did exactly the same thing. And, you know, here's a pitch for the rock stars to check out. If you, um, if you check out puremix.com, uh, I'm one of the mentors there. There's a three hour video of me and Tyler, uh, me, uh, it's all me actually. No, <laughs> of Tyler Bryant and the shakedown of me producing Tyler Bryant shakedown, a, a track. Cool. And it's from the second we set up the mics and plugged them in through listening through every microphone of the drums and all the guitars, how we figured out what amps. And, you know, we, we did amps, guitar amps in the room with the drummer now. And, and Tyler Bryant's a, a pretty rocking band. We played through Princeton's small amps always sound better than big amps. And the reason being is if you get that small amp to sound pretty great, you put a mic on, it's going to be great. Whereas if you have a, like a 412 cabinet or something like that, part of the sound of it is all those speakers. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to mic all those speakers, you know, in the um, room and in the, the room space, and you yeah. have to kind of, it's all that sound. So, but a single 12, you know, uh, uh, and we found that out big time with the clutch record because we cut all the basic tracks with his, um, uh, his two amps and four twelves. And when we started doing some overdubs and I started bringing in small amps, you know, his eyes were just like, whoa, what is that sound? Like, well, that's a small amp. We can get a really great sound. You can stand in front of it. It sounds amazing. I put a mic on it. Now it sounds monstrous. Is it also partly that you, it gives you more room to turn the mic pre up? So you get a little more gain on the mic too. You think that has anything to do with it? Or maybe, is that, maybe, maybe. <laughs> you know, maybe. Um, yeah. I remember discovering that early on that the, um, that little amp sounded great. In fact, I sold my big amp to buy three little amps instead mm -hmm. and start using the studio. Princeton reverb, a Princeton and or a Princeton reverb is probably one of the best sounding guitar amps I've ever heard. I mean, just amazing. Um, the Stapleton records, that's 163 Princeton. That's a brown Princeton. He has, he has, he just plays through one. And then um, I mic it with four mics. Tell us about that. Well, it's, it's a little bit of a weird deal. Uh, maybe um, I can throw you a picture so you can see it. But basically what I, my go-to for mic, for micing guitars, I always mic guitars with two mics. So I use a U67 and a 57. Now, if I can't get a 67, um, I do have an older 80s, 87, that is kind of okay. Um, but basically, I try to get a 67 if I can, and a 57. Now, those two are right on top of each other. They are exact, I mean, they are as pushed together as they possibly could be. And if you were to look at the cone of a speaker, and you were to put your finger in the middle of the speaker, and then just slide it um, over to the right, right where the edge of the speaker is, is where I place the, those two microphones. On the cone, not on the spider, but on the cone, but just to the right. So then what I did with Stapleton, because he's the only guitar player, I can easily pan those two microphones. And that sounds really good hmm. because they have different, they're, they're on the same plane, so they're always going to be in phase. But if you pan them, you get a faux stereo image because of their, their transient response. You know, their dynamic response. One's a dynamic, one's a, one's a condenser. They, yeah. they, they react differently. Mm -hmm. And their frequency response. So, But yet they're locked in phase. So if you want to hard pan them, that's great. If you put them together, they sound amazing. 
On the other side of that, if you were just go exactly in the same spot on the other side of the cone, now this is a 12 inch speaker. On the other side of the cone, I used an RCA BK5, which is a very super cool vintage microphone. You just have to look up, it's got a really cool history. And then a Cole, not a Coles, a uh, Royer 121 mm-hmm. is what I believe it was. May have been an SF12, but I think it was a 121 or a 122, whatever. Um, so why two ribbons? Well, the BK5 kind of doesn't sound like a ribbon. Sort of like a 57 of ribbons. It's kind of it? like a, yeah, it's kind of like a supercharged uh, 57, but it's a ribbon, which is awesome. And then the 121 is just a ribbon. So on volume one and volume two, I use this setup and the 5767 is on the right and the BK5 121 is on the left. And that is his guitar sound. Now, do the ribbons get, uh, how close are these mics to the amp? They're on the grill cloth. And so the ribbons included? Yeah. Right, because you're not using a huge, super loud amp that's overloading Mm -hmm. the ribbons. And I'm using the correct microphones. So really, the only ribbon you really got to worry about blowing up is a 77. You'll blow one of those up. A 44 is pretty tough to blow up. You have to, you have to really like, really stretch the ribbon, but they're, they're pretty tough. Um, uh, you can blow up a Coles. Yeah. Really pretty easy. Yeah. Uh, on the White Stripes record that was done, Chicarelli, Joe Chicarelli did a Blackbird. Uh, they destroyed 11 Coles. Wow. Just went from working volume, to not working or volume, working to it doesn't volume. sound going to. Yeah, they just went from working to blown up. Um, yeah. Do you sometimes notice coals sounding like they're a little bit worn out? Mm-hmm. Um, anything we should know to listen for, to know that our you ribbons. Just, they just start sounding muddy and and the top, the transient response isn't very good. Yeah. They'll just, they just, the ribbon just gets soft, stretched. Dig it. Um all right, cool. Well, let's take a break for a sec, and then cool. we'll come back in for the Jam Session Rockstars. A reminder that um, I'll have links to YouTube playlist and uh, possibly photos from Vance in the blog post. You can just go uh, click through for the show notes on your listening device or just go to rsrockstars.com and find it there. We'll see you in just a minute for the Jam Session. You've already invested in your studio speakers, headphones, and treatment of the room. And you're passionate about creating great music, but your mixes don't seem to translate to the rest of the world. The reason is that your speakers and headphones are not telling you the whole story. The frequency response of your studio has huge peaks and valleys all throughout the low end that are completely screwing up your perspective. You may be doing your best to hit the bullseye with your mix, but your room makes the target of a perfect mix impossible to find. Wouldn't it feel great if there was a simple tool that could fix all that for you and help you get your mixes right the first time? Introducing Sonarworks Reference 4, the affordable solution to correcting your speakers and headphones in your studio. Built for Windows and Mac, Sonarworks helps you position your speakers, correct your control room imperfections, and get a million dollar sound on a home studio budget. Get a 21-day free trial at sonarworks.com and start your journey toward the perfect mix. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most? 
which is making great music. Well, now you can rely on OWC, Other World Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your existing Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM, install an SSD drive, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, Rockstars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Vance Powell joining us here at the Toy Box Studio. Vance, are you ready to jam? Yeah, let's jam. Um, I got more questions. I want to ask you another question about the Glenn Johns lining things up. Mm -hmm. It's such a cool, intriguing concept. I'm, I'd be surprised. I know I want to try it out, and I'm sure other listeners do. What kind of a size or shape of a room works for that kind of experiment? I think it works for any size and any shape. Um uh, you just have to just have enough room to put things on the sides of the drums. Here's the things that don't work very well. Bass guitar amps tend to make snare drums rattle. Right. Electric guitar amps tend to make snare drums rattle. So these are all things like you can kind of make a little bit of room for. Strangely, though, you kind of don't want the bass way off in the left side of your room, although it is kind of cool sounding. Uh, so, you know, sometimes the bass amp is just not very loud. And then, you know, once, you know, the, the closer you are to something, the louder things get, you know, Fletcher Munson, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so, but then like, if you turn it down, then you might get some drums in it. Now here's the deal. All of that doesn't matter if the band's great. If the band sucks and you have to pocket every bass drum, every bass hit and the bass doesn't play in tune, you are <laughs> you're to, you, that's so what you're going to have to re-record it. So look, it, it requires a it requires a level of skill that actually has nothing to do with you. It, it has to do with the band. Yeah. So you have to kind of like see the band and go. You know, they they got good songs. They don't play in time. Okay, we can't do that. Just give the bass player a di. You know what I mean? Just give the bass player a di, and then say, hey, we're, we're going to reamp your bass later, which you can easily do. There's there's you know, plugins that'll do it. I mean, I have done it a bunch. Just said, look, we're we're just not going to record the bass amp because I'm just going to do it later. And I'll, I've got a B15. I'll set it up. I'll get a great sound. I'll just reamp it once, then put it in time because it won't be in time. You'll have to adjust that. So that's one place where phase of time alignment is, is, is very a good important. Um, the UA, the Jonathan Little box that's in the UA, the the, the, the phase, IBP, IBP that yeah. man, that is the that is the ticket. And your DI is always going to be ahead of your amp. So just put it on the DI and then and then slow down the DI yeah. by a few milliseconds. Yeah, usually it doesn't hurt to help the, the bass sound a little more laid, oh, absolutely. laid back. Absolutely. Put it out of phase and turn it till the bass disappears and then flip the phase back. Oh, and cool. you got it. That's Great. the ticket. Great. Um, now, sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes you have to kind of jump through hoops. But um, uh, this Stray Cats record I just did, you know, we had four four mics, four bass channels. We had a DI, which 
most of the time was not, not worth anything uh, by itself. It required reamplification. Then we had the base amp. He had a, we had a, a SVT with an 810 sitting on its side and a U47 in front of it. That was great. That sounded awesome. And then we had a, a U47 on the body and a 67 up on the neck. And so all of his bases are pretty, you know, they're pretty rockabilly bases. They're pretty loud and ticky tacky. So that 67 is just for that click right. thing. The 47 is just for the, the acoustic sound of the bass. And then the amp is the thing that gives it all its body. Yeah. And then the DI, um, on a couple of them, he has different eyes. He has a whole purse full of, um, and I say it's a purse, but it's a, it's like a, it's like, it, it's basically kind of what it looks like, like a carry-all bag. And it's full of uh, pickups. So he'll be like, hold on, let me try this pickup. And stick it in, <laughs> plug it in. He goes, oh, no, let's try this one. And you had all these base DI pickups, the Wendy's Bridge. So yeah, he's been doing this for so long. He was so good, such a good player and great pitch. Um, so then you've got four different things you're recording for the bass. So yeah, so then phase like suddenly becomes this deal. Okay, what's the the master phase? Yeah, like what's home base? Right. So what I did was home base is the DI. Now that sounds a little weird, but it's the first thing to get there. It's even before the microphones. So I aligned the amp and the DI together and got them sounding great. Then I made that a group. So in other words, that's, that's a thing. That's its own thing. That's one channel. And then I took the two mics and made sure those were always in phase. And then I flipped those with the amp and moved the DI closer to the microphones using that IBP to get them correct. Yeah. And, and, it, and it worked. It's great. And then, and suddenly all the low end kind of focuses and it's awesome. So, um, that's a, that's a cool, that's a cool tip. Kick drum works on kick drum too. If you're using inside and outside. Um, now, do you notice sometimes, uh, absolute polarity of a bass or a kick drum sounding better just by itself? Strangely, sometimes I get a DI and an, a mic and it sounds amazing and it's, wacky doodle in phase the phase is 45 or 65 degrees off and it's like well this is what it sounded like when they were playing it back and i get it because certain frequencies are accentuated because of the phase and certain frequencies are being nulled and it sounds better this way yeah you know what i mean sometimes though you just put them in together and you go oh wow, that sounds really great um but right. that phase is that's a deal you you can adjust that and get different tones and you know, like I said earlier, look, don't don't do this with drums, right? Except for when it works with the low end. Now, there are a few things. Almost every recording I get to mix, the overheads are out of phase with the snare drum. Right. Almost every recording. Um, I think it's because the stick is pushing the head down and pulling the, and it's, the top and it's mic four out. feet away. So, yeah, there is no such thing as absolute phase. But does this sound better? Does this sound better? And one of them will have more low end than the other. But I listen to rough mix and it's like, yep, that's obviously not in phase. Right. The other thing that happens is the toms often are not in phase with the overhead. And, and you know, so some phase is the important thing here. Alignment isn't. Phase is important. Yeah. So, so the loudest thing in the drum sets, the snare drum. Align everything to that. Sometimes the kick drum is out of phase. You know, flip them both. 
Yeah, you got to check everything against everything. You guys everything. could just, you know, okay, cool. Now, is the low end better if, is the low end better on the kick drum if I flip the kick drum? Uh, okay, yes, no, whatever, whatever it is. Okay, cool. Now, I'm going to leave the snare drum alone. I'm going to put the overhead in. Is the overhead better in phase or out of phase? Oh, it's better out of phase. Okay, cool. Now, I'm going to put the floor tom in, and I'm going to flip the phase just while it's sort of moaning along and see which one has more low end. Ah, oh, that has more low end, whichever way it is. Mm-hmm. Rack tom, same thing. And then, like, okay, cool. Now, I'm going to listen to the overhead and the hats, and I'm going to flip the overhead and the hats. Which one's better? Hi-hat and snare drum. You know, I hate the hi-hat, but, <laughs> but you know, like it's become a thing. Okay, I got to like it. Yeah. You know? And so I'll do that. I'll do all of those tests when we're tracking. I do them all when we're tracking. Uh, But when I get stuff to mix, I'll go through that whole arrangement. Now, you do it all when you're tracking, but do you sometimes (laughs) find you get to the overdubs and mixes later and you're like, you're like, what the fuck, you know, why is this sound? I need to flip it again. Pro Tools or any DAW, you go, oh, look at that. It's out of face. What a dumbass I am. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And then you just flip it. Yeah. Fix it. All right, so um, Soul of a Man, Stephen Dale Pettit Stephen Dale band. Pettit. My friend, yeah. Stephen Dale Pettit. Yeah. He's got a great guitar tone, I noticed with this. I would describe it as a low end that kind of rushes into the room. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about how to record guitars that sound bigger than just 157 on the amp. Of course, you already did. You talked about like multi-miking. Yeah. And that's what that is. That's that's a single speaker. That He has a, he has a, a 64 Plexi. 50 watt. And what we use, we, he just brought his head over. I have, I have this thing that I, that there's a guy back in my hometown named Dave Crocker. And he's a, he's been a long time. Uh, if people are into vintage guitars, he, he runs, he's part of the three amigos, vintage guitar guys, the Texas guitar show. He's all part of that. And I've known him since man, I was 13 or 14. You know, I've been buying stuff from him since I was 17, probably. Um, I was down in his shop which he actually just closed up, which is a bummer. But, um, uh, but I was down at his shop, and I and he had this Fender extension speaker. Now, I've never seen a Fender extension speaker, so I asked about it, and he he basically said, "Look, I've had this for twenty five years. I've never sold it. People have tried. It. He goes, but I'll sell it to you." He said, "It's it's something Fender made custom. It's a sixty four Tremolux." case, I think is what it was, Tremolux, 6465, something like that. This is pre-CBS, dr- uh, not drip edge, and they they put a face on it of wood and Tolex the whole thing. So it, And then they put a 30-foot cable on it. It's got this 30-foot molded cable. So the little cable on the back of Fender amps that came out of the back of the amp and went down to the speaker, yeah. they just put 30-foot of that in, <laughs> and they put a little wire wrap inside it so you wrap the wire so it was meant to go like the amp on one side of the stage and the extension speaker on the other side. But Fender never made one. They never sold one. So this was custom built for somebody. And it has the Fender logo and it has a uh, serial numbered 64 Jensen ceramic in it. So it's it's an in-time speaker. It's just like a second speaker, but it's, it's a just second far speaker, away just from the extension amp. speaker. It's probably meant to go on the other side of the drum set. Yeah. And it was probably made for one of their artists in 63 or 64. So there weren't very many of them. So, I mean, you know, could have been the Ventures. It could have been the Beach Boys. Who knows? But he'd had this thing forever and he sold it to me. And so I've been using it. Now, I've expected all along that I'm going to shred the speaker 
and I, it never happens. I've used it with a hundred watt, hundred watt, uh, orange. I just don't turn it up very much, but at some point the speaker just, it just sounds really great. And that's what we used for, for Steven. So that was the main speaker or it was yeah. used as an extension. No, that speaker. was it, man. We just turned that thing up into that extension speaker should have blown it up. But again, it's a 50 watt Marshall. Uh, and, uh, it's an eight ohm speaker. So at eight ohms, it, it doesn't really put out 50 watts, it puts out about 25. So it was right at the edge of the speaker. And I think that speaker is a 40 watt or something like that. 35 or 40 watt speaker. Now it's still the, the, the yeah, guitar 67, sound. 57, exact same sound. It's a very wide sort of stereo sound. I really hear the room and I hear the guitar on the left, but I hear the room on the right. What, uh, what are some ways to create that kind of wide and big room well, sound I, on a guitar? On that, you know, that, that's all played live. So, so his guitar amp, you know, I think his guitar amp was in my small room. So I may have cheated and put the, put a little bit of, I, like I don't remember right away. Like I may have like, yeah, I may have used my room reamping it, you know, or, or something. I may have faked some room somehow, but um, what are some good ways to do that? Maybe just uh, hip the rock stars to some great ways to create. Yeah, so the first thing is if you have a if you have a guitar and you've recorded it and you want to add some room to it, uh, run the reamp, run the guitar through a reamp box to an amp to this to a guitar speaker, and um, just make sure you don't send much level to the amp, so you're getting it pretty clean, and then just record your room mics after the fact, and you don't have to really about worry about moving them or any of that. Shit, you could just leave it. Just and just, just add a little doing. bit of ambience, yeah. Just you, in your room. Do you find it useful sometimes to record the room and then just sort of time delay that room mic slightly? Mm. Well, you can, the, but I don't. Um, how about you know recreating space around a guitar effectively if you're not actually reading? You know, the other thing, that, the, the other thing that you know what you might be hearing is tape echo, because I do use the two two full tones on everything. And I know on Steven, I, I put whatever was on his vocal, I put on his guitar to try to put those two in the same space. So that might be a little bit of tape echo that you're hearing. That sounds like reverb because there's two of them. Yeah. Okay, you know? cool. Dig it. Um, yeah. All right. Here's another question for you. Mm -hmm. I'm Jesse Dayton, Hurting Behind the Pine oh, Curtain. I love that song. Um, that, I like, uh, he recorded that in his garage. Oh, really? Literally recorded it in his garage. He has a two-car garage. In Austin. So is that one that came to you to it mix? It came to me to mix, yeah. Um, so one of the things that I noticed or that just made me think of this question was the the drums um, kind of dark, not not like mm -hmm. aggressive bright cymbals. And it just want, made me want to ask you the question about the relationship of cymbals to guitars. Like who gets cymbals the high end? Who eat gets the mid? Guitars. Cymbals what? Eat guitars. There's a band called Cymbals Eat Guitars. But yeah, Cymbals Eat Guitars. You know, cymbals are what drummers play when they don't have a better idea. Right. Because they're drummers. They're not cymbalists. Is that a word? Is that a word? I, I just make know. that it up. Now. Efren's cymbalist is junior. You know that <laughs> joke? Or know who that is? Uh, yeah. I mean, cymbals are, you know, they're meant to be accents. Drummers a lot of times play cymbals because they just don't have a better idea. And so I'm not a big cymbal fan. Like for me, overheads are, are ribbons. That way they don't, they just don't eat up all that space mm -hmm. and they sound natural. That doesn't mean that I haven't recorded them with, you know, 
condensers. Usually when I, I have used condensers a lot when cutting the tape, that's what condensers were made for. So, right. um, but yeah, I just probably try my best to make sure that the beat all, all, in other words, all the fundamentals of the beat, the one, the two, the three, the four, and the five, if there's a five, and a six and a seven, if there's a seven, and an eight, if there's an eight. And, you know, all those beats are covered. You know, so is the hi-hat playing, or, you know, whatever that's playing. Okay, cool. That's a, that's a thing. Kick, snare, kick, snare, shh, or whatever ride whatever i want to make sure i want to hear that stuff but but i like i don't mic ride cymbals you know i don't i don't a friend of mine the other day was telling me he was he's doing a record and uh he's printing 39 tracks of drums wow i hope that's a a metal record it's a metal (laughs) record it's a metal record or a hard rock band yeah and you it's a band you've heard of and so, uh, what kind of stuff might go into a thirty-nine? Every track symbol, of drums? Uh, I see. every symbol, top and bottom toms, all that. And I, I'm like, okay, that's cool. But it's like each individual thing is being treated like a sample of that one, basically, yeah, or something. Yeah, I mean, a part of me sort of thinks that that's a surefire way to capture the performance. But the other part of me realizes that the drums, to some degree, aren't that important. You know, I mean, how many how many people off the top of their head, like if you even went to drummers, let's just say, and you said, okay, cool, sing me a line from, uh, let's just let's make it easy. Let's just pick a stone song. Pick pick me, sing me a line from, um. Brown sugar. Okay, cool. People know brown sugar. You just said that because I'm wearing my fame t-shirt. Exactly. Exactly. Um, except that was done at uh, Muscle uh, Shoals right. Sound. Yeah, yeah, it was. So there you go. Jackson um, away. Yeah. Uh, but there you go. So, so yeah, you, you, everybody knows brown sugar. Cool. What, what's, uh, what's the drummer playing? You know, he's playing what people would describe as great, straight steady exactly. tempo. My the, the the point of the matter is is that is that it the, the drum part is important, but it's not the it's not the most important part. You know? It's you have just to feel it. it's just a, it's just a yeah, it's a thing. You know, you 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 feel it. It's a weird one. I, I don't know any song except for Wipeout, maybe, where the drums are the important part. Uh, Land of a thousand dances, maybe. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, dead mouse, <laughs> but even that isn't so much that it's True. not so much about the drums. It's about the beat. Yeah. It's not uh, about the drums. So, so, okay, cool. But there are certain genres where that's really important, you know, metal, speed metal, all that stuff. A lot of those guys, they're recording and then all those sounds get replaced. They all get replaced. They all get put on a grid. They're all put on a like really, really tight grid. Mm-hmm. And then the bass is recorded again, and then it's put on a grid, and the guitar is recorded, and then it's cut up into so that every beat is exactly on the hi-hat, and every single beat is on the kick drum, and everything is, ah, okay, cool. That's great. Yeah. And, um, and, and I get it. I totally get it. Let it's me ask you this. You me. talked about pocketing earlier, and I meant to ask this question. Uh, recently, I've been – 
working on a song and I was asked to, to sort of straighten out the tempo and speed it up. So I went back into Elastic Audio and started manipulating it there. Um, how often do you use tools like that um, or, I, or I don't ever Beat really, Detective we, we don't or ever any really, of those things? We never use Beat Detective. Um, a, I don't know how to use it. Uh, Elastic Audio, we will use Elastic Audio to do things like, um, okay, the band loves this take, but they feel that it's two beats too fast. Okay, cool. Let me put in Elastic Audio and let me see if it feels better. If it feels better and the band can do the take again at that tempo, we'll just do it at that tempo. There's no free lunch, you know? I mean, I've had to, I've had to pitch a song down a half step, not because the singer couldn't hit it, but because it sounded better. It was in a better range of his voice. Mm -hmm. And um, to do that, because it was a live performance, I had to, do it everywhere. And that didn't sound really good at all. So what ended up happening was, you know, we kept the drums at normal pitch. We re-recorded the bass, we recorded the guitar, we recorded the vocal. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's no real free lunch in it. Right. When we uh, pocket things or edit things together, we do it old school. I do it, we do it like tape. So we cut everybody together first. So in other words, everybody, it's whole band edits. So it'd be like you're editing a two-track two tape. And then you get it so the drums sound good. And then if the bass needs to move back in its original spot, as long as it's not too much in the room or whatever, fine. Then we listen to the guitar. Okay, cool. If I put the guitar now back in its original spot, does it sound wrong? Was the guitar player anticipating the drummer and the drummer's playing slow? You know, like, so you have to just kind of make all that just try to make it as natural as yeah, possible. Yeah. But, you know, even the best drummers from time to time will say, you know, I kind of rushed in this spot. You know, can we clean that up a little bit? So you might, uh, you're saying for fixing up a drum thing, it might be just going manually and move a we few We just do it manually. Around. That's yeah. exactly how we always do it. Yeah. We don't, we don't use Beat Detective or anything. What we'll do is we'll figure out the tempo and then, um, and I say we, when I say we, I mean my assistant, Mike Faye, he's like awesome at this. Um, he will actually like print a click at the tempo of the song, the, at, the, at the tempo that we want the song. Right. So like, we'll go, okay, cool. So like this part, this is what we do. We put it in Alaska Audio. And then just pick a point and then pick another point and put it in that tempo. So move it from whatever it is to where it is. Right. And the, the crazy thing is you can do really weird stuff with it. Because if you haven't recorded with a tempo, if you're just wild, you can just put it at 120 and say, okay, we want it 121. And it'll actually just speed it up one beat. Regard, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like if you go 145 and you say you want it 150, you know, I mean, it's a deal you have to just kind of be careful with. And so we'll print a little click, drum, click track there. And then he'll just adjust around that. So not put it on the grid, but around it. And that'll give us a, you know, okay, what's happening here? Okay, usually it's drummer plays time, 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 fill, 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 late. Fill, 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 early. Right. You know, it's like, okay, cool. So that fill needs to now me, ba 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 boo ba ba boo where it was, ba 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 boo ba ba boo You know, it was too fast, you know, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And that's where everybody kind of goes, whoa, what happened? 
And so are we saying that Elastic Audio is great for um, exploring the possibilities? I think it's it's awesome to try out things. Uh, Does it ever stay to the finish line sonically? Yes, it has. Sometimes it does. It has. Uh, But if if so, it's it's usually tiny. I mean, I think think there's a song on the clutch record, we sped up uh, three-fourths of a beat. Nice. Or, or maybe like one beat. It wasn't enough to recut it. It was like a deal where we were doing the vocals or something like a little later. We'd already cut the track. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, this was just a little faster. And then I, and then I commit that so that it's not doing it on the fly. Yeah. It just does it once. If- to be honest with you, there's a bunch of tools that do it better. Uh, pitch and time does it better. Yeah, that's been around for a while. Uh, pitch and time does, pitch and time is really good. Elastic Audio is kind of like the, you know, the test kitchen. Yeah. You know, but then when you go to Pigeon Time and you look and it's $900, it's kind of like that thing. Mm, I don't think I want to spend $900 for one BPM. <laughs> I think Elastic, Elastic Audio will be fine. I'm just going to commit it and not leave it in, you know, the live mode or whatever it's called. It's, li- it's actually live making all that because that doesn't always sound very good. All right, so let me ask you about um, cutting records at Sputnik. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're producing and recording a band, you're going to mix mm-hmm. it yourself too. What format do you typically like to use to record onto? Well, I, I have I'm, I'm a Pro Tools guy. I have a Burl system, so uh, I have a I have a 24 by 32 Burl rig. So is I'm that the mothership. Is mothership, that what call it? mothership. Yeah, and uh, so I'll cut it there first. Now, up until relatively recently, I had an 800. And I had all three head stacks. I had a two inch eight, I had a two inch sixteen, and a two inch twenty-four. Um, I sold it to Jack White. Now the reason I sold it to Jack White is he wanted one, uh, and he was willing to pay what I wanted for it because I did have all three heads. I also had both capstan motors. I had the ultra rare seven and a half fifteen capstan motor, mm. new old stock, still in a box, still sealed. And he uses, he records a seven and a half yeah. on the two inch. So it was something for him that, that had everything he needed. I had tons of spares, tons of spares. I bought two machines to make one. So I had tons of spares. I had five power supplies where it only needs three for 24 track. I had five power supplies. You know, I've got all the heads. You oh, know, that's a good feeling. I mean, if you're not using it so much yourself, uh, well, what, and it goes what, to somebody who's going to use it. What's happened a lot, is, is that nobody has any money for tape. Nobody has money for tape. Nobody has the time. And and I hate to say this, relatively few bands are good enough. Hmm. And that's the thing. They're not good enough. So that means I would cut it on tape, transfer it in Pro Tools, edit it, and then punch in the edits back into Pro Tools or back into tape if i'm yeah. going to keep it on tape yeah. but nobody nobody's interested in it people are interested in it in this stupid way and that is okay we're going to cut it in pro tools and then transfer it to tape to mix like what you know why i just did a record like that they sent it to me on 16 track they obviously cut it in pro tools because every song was laid out exactly the same and every song had multiple stacks of background vocals on two tracks. Right. You know, and they cut the lead vocal on 24. On track 24? Yeah. <laughs> right next to well, the Well, no, it was synthi- on 16. Sorry, it was on 16. 
So it's like, okay, you send me the tape to mix from, but you filled every track. So I can't put Simpty on any of these. So I can't mix it off tape. I mean, I can't, not really. So I just put the 16 track head on. Oh, and they didn't send me any tones. Oh man. So I just did generic, you know, MRL lineup, transferred it and mixed it out of Pro Tools. And you know, it it would have been just better if they just would have sent me the track. So what is your preferred um, format for mixing? Do you like to mix through the board? I mix through, I mix on the desk, period. So yeah, Pro Tools to the desk, every track. I, I put, I do every mix into 32 channels. So like I had a mix last week, I had 128 tracks on one song. And basically what I've got is I've got, I have a, um, the fader port two, the new fader port. Um, now, now, uh, you know, my desk has automation. I have an SSL 6,000, uh, it's custom modified, has a all API, uh, Jeff Steiger, Cappy, um, mix bus. So I have an API mix bus in my SSL. It has the SSL automation, has the SSL recall, total recall. So all that stuff works. Um, but I have uh, two artist mix, the six eight-channel boards, and I have a fader port to the new one, which I'll get to in a minute. And I have a iPad with a touch control. All that, the iPad and the, the, the fader port are right in front of me. Now, why did I get a fader port? Okay, well, here's the funny thing. I got the new one because I was hoping the new one um, – would give me some new, the features of the old one. The old one actually is really great. It's super cheap. And that's the single fader. The single fader one. It shows up as a Huey with just one fader. The new one shows up as eight faders. So if I click on a window in Pro Tools, it doesn't go to that fader. It just goes to that eight around it. It's hmm. the stupidest thing ever. Hmm. So if somebody at Prosonus wants to call me or write me, you know, at vanceadvancepile.com, I have a friend who works there and I thought about calling, but I cannot really get it to work anywhere near what I want. Hmm. Because, so, because from time to time, I will click on a track and want to just write a little Pro Tools automation because a track may be in the middle of a group of tracks, like on this one, like there was a strings. So you got a whole lot of strings that come up on two channels on my desk, but there was a cello part I wanted to ride. So now I got to find it. And then I write it. So basically what I end up doing, it should just be right in front of me with the Vader port, but I have to get out my artist mix and set it on top of the desk. And I have a little tray that flies over the faders that, you know, I can just do it. So I, I, I've been thinking about getting the Fader port. I haven't gotten one yet, but um, it really is it's so much more um, pleasant to move that fader than trying to ride that with a mouse. Oh yeah. You can't do it. You can't mix with a mouse. Yeah. I would say right now, you can't mix a record with a mouse. I know people who do it. I can't. I'm not saying you can't. I'm saying I can't. But then I'm also saying you can't because you you can't really get the feel of the mix without putting your fingers on the faders. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that Avid maybe has 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 hit the mark and then missed. Uh, one of the coolest things that Avid made the uh, C24, not the first mm-hmm. one, but the second one, faders on that were amazing, and and that console was really great. I, I bought one. I had one for I had one for about a year. Um, I made the greatest gear swap in history and got rid of it. Um, I traded it for two three three six zero nine A's. Nice. Yeah, they probably make stuff sound mo, mo better. Yeah, those are really good. It was a it was kind of a karma deal. 
uh, I traded them to Jimmy Swaggart Ministries. <laughs> nice. I traded my $6,500 C- Control 24, C24 for two 33609s, which are worth $7,000 a piece now. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, they're the best-sounding drum compressor I've Yeah, ever. that's exactly what I use them for. Um, I had two of them, not just one, but two. Great steel forever. A stereo one on the left channel and a yeah, stereo, stereo one on the right yeah, channel. Exactly. Um, okay, cool. So what about format? So you're you're gonna record in the Pro Tools, you're using the Burl. 9624. 9624. Period. There you go. That's the answer we were looking for. Now, what about 32? Is that useful? 32 nope. bit? No. Because my converters uh, and my converters and no one else's will record 32 bit. It'll 30 you can set up the session with 32 bit processing. Mm-hmm. It'll process them at 32 bit. But it can't record a 32-bit file. The so converters are nobody's converters are set for that. So and Avid can't even do it. I think Avid may be able to do it with the, the DAD converters, but Avid doesn't make a converter that records 32-bit. So you're saying if the session when you start the new session you say 2496, not 3296. Yeah. Okay, dig it. Um, all right. Well, so let's talk about mix setups. I think um, if I if I remember right, the quietest. Like if you could record something in 32 bits and play it back so you could hear it, the loudest thing would destroy the earth. <laughs> Isn't that your goal anyway for mixing rock yeah. records? It would literally break the earth into thousand pieces because it's like, you know, the de- the decibel difference between like 80 decibels or whatever it is, 75 decibels, you could hear it. And then 160 dB above that, you know. It's like a, it's like the shuttle like an atomic off bomb at a shuttle. foot. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah, it's stupid, you know? So, so the, the point is we could get all pedantic about, yeah, processing and blah, 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 and all that stuff. But. All right, cool. No, we're just looking for good straight answers. Yeah. I think, I mean, 9624 is great. <clears throat> I mean, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but your records sound pretty great. So I think, well, I, I try. I try. Uh, all right. So let's talk about, um, setups. So mix setups, um, mm-hmm. What are some go-to mix setups that you might use for a rock band? You know, drums, I use the bass, same mix guitars, setup bass. for every every record, no matter what it is. Even a jazz record. I did this jazz record a couple of years ago. Um, I mixed it. It's called the BWM Trio, and the record is called "Whether It Is Necessary Remains to Be Seen." They're Norwegian, and it falls under like kind of Norwegian black jazz. Um, Lots of crazy time signatures, lots of, I mean, lots of crazy stuff. But I mix the record like a rock record. It's like the drums are really big and way up front. And um, I, when I sent it to them, they were just like, oh, my God, this is awesome. Like, they had no idea that this record could even sound anywhere near this big. Uh, so I have the same mix setup for everybody. I, I, I use parallel busing extensively. Um, I have, my console is 48 by 32 buses. It's a, it's a obviously, uh, you know, 32 input or 48 inputs, but also has 48, uh, returns. Mm -hmm. So it's a 96 input desk. So, um, I use the returns for the parallel buses. So a one and two is three, three, six, oh, nine is drum bus. Five and six is Fatso. I use it. I call it the Crush Bus. Fatso Crush Bus. Um, five and six is a three three six zero nine for music minus bass, no bass, just music. So keys, guitars, mm-hmm. strings, 
anything with melody and chords and things. Seven and eight is, uh, I have a GML, uh, what's that? Uh, the compressor? 90, 500, 90, 700, whatever the compressor. Yeah. Uh, the compressor, vocals, background vocals, and lead vocals. Um, that is the coolest piece of gear ever that I know nothing about. I just happened upon one that were a, a setting that works for me and I leave it. We mark it. I leave it. Never touched. Don't touch uh, it. Don't touch it. Don't, just don't touch it. One of the LEDs or a couple of the LEDs are out. I'm just like, I don't care. Still works. Still sounds great. Thank you, George. Um, and then from there, it gets into some weird stuff. I have a parallel bass rig us for uh sub bass i have an old disco boom box uh, dbx oh, yeah. 500 disco DBX. boom box and then i have a state Doesn't that have little rca jacks in it yeah but i drilled those out and put uh xlrs on it nice i uh, drilled them out and made it's all unbalanced but i i just put xlrs on the back and uh it's funny you know the 500 is expensive it's a full rack unit if you open it up it has nothing inside you can buy the little tiny one like the 119 or whatever 115, whatever it is. I, I can't remember which one it is. And it's exactly the same thing. Same RCAs, just drill those out, put quarter inches on them. They're unbalanced, but it's the exact same board. So DBX just made a rack mount version and charged twice as much for it. Smart marketing. It's perfect marketing. marketing. The cool thing is if you if you are tricky, you could actually put two of them in that one box because that box is huge. There's nothing in there. So you could take one out of a small box and put it in the second one, put two sets of knobs on it, and it would be... Do we have room for more than one subharmonic you generator? Know, probably, <laughs> depending on what we're doing. But I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But um, uh, let me I ask have you, been how, known... How do you I, use that? I mean, what's, what's, how is a subharmonic generator useful? When, when bass, and- bass, brother. Bass is the place. Just send, the ba- send it to the bass. Send the bass to it. And uh, if you have some big speakers, put your big speakers up, play the bass, and turn it up till it sounds like there's an octaver, and then just turn it down a little and leave it. Okay. Forget. Set and forget. It just is that thing that I like down low. I do it on every record. Uh, if you listen to the Raconteurs record, the Consolers of Lonely record, it is on the kick drum, it's on the bass, and it's on all of Jack's guitar solos. The one unit is getting one all that unit. stuff sent to the all one that unit? stuff to shove to it in mono. Okay, cool. And then comes out in mono in the middle. So, yeah, it's pretty great. Could we fake something like that in a Pro Tools routing? Yeah, there's a sub there's a there's a sub bass setting. Uh, you just the DBX, here's the thing about the DBX. It's slow. Mhm. It's sloppy. The 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 sub synth one in Pro Tools is like way too good. Too precise or something. And the funny thing is, what's funny, if you look through the presets, the presets, all of them are like 12% dry or 12% wet. It's like, it's just, it's just too good. Right. It's too easy to make that sub bass digitally. The, the DBXs, you know, they were, it was analog. It, it was all done analog. And um, some, uh, this is way too nerdy. Some boards have three oscillators. Some have two. Mine has two on the big one, but the small one has three. Mm. And some people like the three. I never, I just use the one. It's a magic number, right? Yeah, it is magic. (laughs) Um, So uh, I have that, that is a parallel bus and my stay level. Now here's the other thing. I have a stay level and I have a 165 retro. They're both retros. 
Um, fantastic product, amazing piece of gear. Sometimes the 165 works better than the stay level for bass. Uh, it depends on the part, and it kind of been, it depends a little bit on the tone. But, you know, the stay level is one of those weird things. You can do 20 dB of compression, it sounds great. Yeah. It is really weird how that works. It's a very muse, so it's much like a it's much like a Fairchild. Um, uh, I don't have the sixty three eighty six tube. I need to get one of those. Put how it do, in the back. How do we think about the return faders on all those parallel things? Do we imagine doing rides and a mix, and we're constantly riding the, the return faders? No, the return faders. Just no, because there? they're post fader. So, like in Pro Tools, you can do this actually really easy in Pro Tools. The the key thing is if you're mixing in the box, let's, so let's let's say for a lot of the rock stars, they're mixing in the box. Totally cool. Here's a few things to know. These are Vance's first few rules. First rule of Pro Tools, when recording, never move the fader. Ever. Never, ever, ever, ever move the fader. If you have to turn the fader down, you are fucking up. Turn the mic pre down. If you can't hear it in the mix, you've fucked up some up someplace else and recorded something too loud. All right. So secondly, those meters go, uh, they, they show a signal from nothing to all the way. You should be somewhere in the middle. It should just be somewhere in the middle. Right. Don't try and record Don't try, hot. Yeah, exactly. There's no need to record hot. We're recording 24 bit. We're not recording 16. We're doing 24. There's no reason to do it. You could record something way down at minus 70 and still it'll be clean enough that if you turn it up, you could destroy the world. But if you, if it should be clean enough that you could turn it up. If you turn the fader down, you are taking away bit depth hmm. because that's how digital world works. That's how the math works. If you turn the fader down, you're going from a 24 bit signal to a 20 bit signal or 22 or 23. You're turn, if you, that fader turns down, you're, the resolution is going away. Hmm. That's how math works. So digital works. So first rule, secondly, Never mix on the outputs. In other words, make your output, you know, your your track output be output one and two. Never, ever, ever, ever do that. Because if you do that, nothing will ever be in time if you try parallel. Interesting. So, so, so use a need bus. To explain that more too. So so set up a bus, right? So go in your in your I.O. setup and and generate for yourself 10 stereo buses. One of those stereo buses is going to be, I just said 10, just create more. Right. Now you got 128. See that, let me rephrase. If it's me, I delete everything from 33 on. I delete all of those because I don't use any more than 33. That's that's a reason, or 32. That's a, There's a reason for that. But in Pro Tools, just, just pick a bus somewhere, label it stereo bus. Now that's going to be your mix bus. Okay? That's where you're sending everything that's your to. That's your mix bus. Then make a bus called print bus. Now that's going to be the output of the mix bus. Then create a bus called monitor. All right. On, take all your tracks, assign them to stereo bus, create an aux and a master fader. Okay. The aux fader. The input will be the stereo bus. The output will be print and monitor. That monitor bus goes to one and two. Now, just stick with me. The master fader 
Okay, the master fader is the print bus. Now what that means, and there's one more here, a little trick. Make another master fader, put it in front of the stereo bus fader, and, and, and make it the stereo bus master. Now you can blast all your tracks down the stereo bus and you have a master fader before the aux. So if you need to turn down the signal before that master, that aux. Now, why you want to do that is when you put a plug-in on that aux, that's your stereo bus compressor. Because it's an aux and not a master fader, that means that stereo bus compressor is pre-fader. You can turn that bus up and down. You can fade out all day long on that aux fader and your compressor will stay engaged. Mm -hmm. Okay? The master fader is really just to print your mix. You don't have to do that. You can just leave that off. That master fader is always there. It doesn't cost you anything. And then that's going to be your print bus and a way to monitor. All right. And you solo safe all those. So, and you solo safe the aux bus, that's your stereo bus, right? So that anything you solo, you hear through the compressor at correct level. Now, take two stereo buses, label them drums, and drum crush. All right. Um, maybe after we're done, I'll do this. I'll make a session for you here. Sure. And then you can put it up. That's not right. cool. I might be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, label those with the output being stereo bus and the input make uh, one of those oxes in your, in your, one of those uh, buses make a bus called drums and make a bus called crush. Okay. So those inputs are going to be those things. Then you use the um, control key and you multi-route in Pro Tools the drums to the stereo bus and to the drum bus. On the drum bus, you make the input drum bus, you make the output stereo bus. If you put a compressor on it, those will be in phase. They will be in time. If you use an aux to do this, they should be in time. But they might not be. But they might not be. Depending on where they are on the track. If you multi-route them at the same time, they'll always be in time. Because the way the DSP works, it's just it just sees those as equals. Mm -hmm. as, as Unlike if you make an aux, a subset of that. Because that aux is going to get processed after the fader. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, you know, so there might be some from time to time issues. in different situations, I have found those to suddenly be out of time. Yeah. It's one of the frustrating things about, uh, well, it's one <laughs> of the wonderful things about working in Pro Tools and routing is there's so much possibility. One of the frustrating things is losing your sense of trust. Yeah. Well, with whether if, all you, those possibilities if you do the multi output busing, they'll always work. The other thing that tends to work strangely is I'll put all your buses on the left side of your session. Now, do you know why? Why? Do they get the processing first? Delay calculation is processed from left to right. No way. Yep. So they're gonna, it's going to calculate based on those longer delays first. Um, another trick that I had to learn here, um, and, and uh, hopefully I'm doing it right and you can correct me if I'm not, but um, if you've got a mix set up with this, this routing towards the mix bus, um, and then you need to add another overdub. 
you know, that using the mix bus and then sending the overdub directly to one, two, my understanding is that that allows you to do the overdub and then set it back into the mix yeah, bus. Yeah, it probably it does. I don't know. I mean, I don't mix in the box really. I used right. to. So what I would do is, you know, like really important things. Sorry, I slid away from the mic. Really important things to know here. First of all, never ever use the master session. If if you're recording on a record and you're recording along as you're working, you can keep working on that same session. That's totally fine. When you get to mix, you need to save as the mix. Keep that original session without all the bunch of plugins, without all that stuff, so that if you do need to do a quick overdub, you can just pop that session back open and do it. I'm just talking about mixing. I'm not talking about recording. You can use yeah. the outputs all you want in recording. Yeah. I, I don't care. But it's when you're mixing. So when you're mixing, you need to get to this busing situation because the the buses will allow you so much flexibility and so much ability to, you know, pull things off that bus if you want to you pull off the Shep's back bus thing. It's super easy to do it. Super, super easy to do it this way without going through a bunch of, jumping through a bunch of hoops. Awesome. You know? um, what about the stereo bus? What about your mix bus? Uh, what are some things that you find really useful to put on there? And um, I, I would say that most of us are mixing in the box. So if you want to right. talk about that, Well, that's you know, I'm a big UA guy. And, and, and UA and sound toys are what I use in almost every mix. That's, that is literally it. Um, there's a sound toys plugin that does everything I want it to do somewhere in the, in the list. Um, UA, same thing. Strangely, I am really, really, really small, uh, user of all the UA plugins. I'm a huge user of a few. Mm -hmm. So, um, I love the, the 1176s. I use them a lot. The 1073, fantastic. I love the legacy 1073. I use it all over the place. Um, the LA-2A, all the time. LA-3A, all the time. Uh, Fairchild from time to time. Um, the 140 plate, amazing. The 224 reverb, amazing. Didn't they, you were talking about the spring reverb on the last episode as well. Oh, the one, the BX-20, amazing. I sold mine. It's great. It's fantastic. Um, so the 33609 is great. Hmm. So... This template that I set up I, in the Fatso and now Distressor. I mean, basically, that's my whole outboard rig. There's no GML compressor. There is, but there isn't kind of really. So, but I could do my whole setup. Um, I could build a template for you guys that would have more or less my whole setup in it and, and make it available to you with UA plugins. And, um, and this would be basically how my desk is set up Period. That's super cool. Um, I just have to sit down and do it. But now, what it, about what about cards? How many cards um, do you need to have typically to set things up the way you would want? I have three octos. Three That's octos. a lot. Yeah, <laughs> uh, two is a minimum. But but this isn't about the plugins. Like I don't I don't put plugins on everything to start with. I'm just talking about the parallel stuff. So that would just be one. That would be easy. Yeah, parallel stuff's easy. You know. I mean, you know, like I said, I just mixed the record had 128 tracks. I can only play back 128 tracks. You know, so I had to go in and do some sub mixes. Yeah. String sub mixes and commit them to get enough room to actually print the mix. Now, that's a little overdone in my opinion, but, you know, happens. So, um, Let me ask you this. Let's talk about uh, loudness and mixing a little bit. 
Um, how do you, uh, or what do you want to comment on, on making a mix feel loud enough so that you feel confident? Um, I guess I'm asking, you know, I, I'm not, not trying to go into the loudness wars discussion or any of that, but just, uh, there is, there is a level a where deal. you feel like it's, well, it's still a deal. It's right. It's to, still you know, a deal. There's, there's, there's tons of mixers, uh, out there and I'm not going to run anybody down or say anything bad about it. Cause I don't really care. You know, we do what we do because we do it you know, because we like it. Um, there's tons of guys who are, who are printing mixes fully mastered, full, full scale rock and roll. Yeah. Um, and they're very successful at it and, and amen. I don't ever do that. I, I work on analog console and I like to, oftentimes I put mixes through tape and I don't want to jump through a bunch of hoops, turning the input levels down because I'm just pinning my needles and, and all that to get it to tape to then just jack it back up coming back. I don't want to do that. Right. So I'm going to record around zero and I'm going to mix around zero. I have this little rule about mixes. I like to say, I like to put it between the threes. So if you look at VU meter, my mixes will land average between the minus three and plus three. So that means that's about 60 dB dynamic range yeah. throughout the course of the mix. Yes, there'll be parts that are lower. Yes, there'll be parts maybe the peak higher, but I do everything in my power to not, I, I want to see the whole meter scale. And rock yeah. stars, that's, we're talking about a VU meter. We're VU not talking meter. about peak meter, right? Not peak meters, VU meters. Yeah. Um, so, now, and I mix with the VU meter. Wh what meters are you looking at in your studio? Well, if we're mixing the in the box. I have the SSL meters. Well, if I'm mixing in the box, there's a bunch of them that are good. Uh, Waves has a pretty good VU meter. PSP, which by the way, has amazing plugins, PSP AudioWare amazing plugins. They have a great set of free meters. That okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. And then what you want to do is whatever your, whatever your output is set to. So if you're doing a minus, this is a whole discussion on, on things that, that, that don't make sense. Um, but if you're doing minus 18 DB FSU, hopefully everybody knows what that means. DB FS, not FSU, but FS, that's DB full scale. If you're doing minus 18, those meters will allow you to set it to minus 18. So you can see see that your your converters at zero are putting out plus four, and your con your zero VU in the box is minus eighteen. Below that is minus scale. eighteen. Yeah. Okay. Below full scale. Um, if if you have your you, you it can be whatever you want. You can go lower. You can go higher. It depends on what your 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 things are calibrated as. All right. Here's another question for you about mixing. Uh, something that. I think helps us a lot uh, when we're trying to make records is to remember to reference great sounding records as we're working, you know, keep checking ourselves. Do you continue to do that yourself? Do you have a process for you that works? I don't. I don't. It's, it's a mental I'm reference. I'm so self-centered that I only listen to me. Um, no, let me see. Let me come up with a good answer to that. Um, I, I try my best to... Well, first of all, I work in the same room all the time. So that means I have a reference. I have, I have a reference. I know what things sound like. Um, do I listen in the car? Sure. From time to time. Um, I will make, like, if I'm mixing a record with a client in the room, I will make a, this secret playlist on iTunes that goes up to the cloud and I get in my car and I just will play that on the way home. It's about 25 minute drive home. So I'll just play some of that on the way home. And uh, that will give me ideas about what I should and shouldn't do. Um, my ego is fragile enough 
that I don't listen to a lot of other stuff while I'm mixing because then I'd probably just give up. You know, some records that I really love, I mean, there's, there's a couple of Crowded House records that Claire Mountain did, I think are just some of those brilliant mixing. You know, Chad Blake, amazing. Andrew, amazing. All these things. All those mixes are amazing. I'm also smart enough to know those records came sounding amazing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, so um, you know, we just do the best we can. There are times where, um, because I've heard my speakers, I mean, I've worked on the same speakers now for 15 years. So I know what they sound like. Those are the Atomic? No, 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 no. Proax. Oh, Proax. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. No, the Atomics I've only had for a couple of years. And they're great for their own thing. They're awesome. I just, I listened to them as a side note. So NS10s with some toilet paper over the tweeters. One ply of Kleenex is actually what it is. <laughs> one ply. I'll have to try this. This is not a, this is not a, it's, it's just, it's a tone shaping. I use it for tone shaping. The, the, the Proac's are real hi-fi. They got great low end and they got a really nice top end. And the mid-range is, the mid-range is cool, but the mid-range is, is very normal. So with the NS10s, if I do the toilet paper, then the mid-range comes way forward. The vocals come forward in the mix, hmm. much like this phone I'm holding in my hand that people listen to music on or cheap speakers in their bedroom or, or you know what I mean? So it's a, it's a different kind of thing. It's kind of like NS10s and, and, and or big speakers and oratones. I mean, it used to people who didn't people didn't mix with near fields. Near fields were oratones. They would mix on the big speakers in the soffit, and then they go to the oratones to see if what everybody what everybody knew. I use NS tens for that. Like my NS tens are backwards from yours. Oh, a tweeter on the inside. Yeah, and that tweeter is eighteen inches apart. So it's they're neat. only 18 inches apart. Right. You're not very, trying to very, set up some, no, some big. No, I want this really narrow field, field right in front of me at ear level, right at ear level that I can, I can get vocals and things because if I can make that mix sound wide when it's, you know, the tweeters are right in front of me a foot and a half apart, we're, we're, we're doing good work. Yeah. You nice. know what I mean? So, so that, that's what works for me. Yes, I have the big atomics. You know, they're seven feet apart. They're huge. I got an 18 on the back. I have to slide back in my room back here to kind of hear them. You know, that's fine. It's for the client. Yeah. So that's what that's for. And what I'm tracking for like getting the kick drum and the bass right. And then I turn them off. Um, now, what about volume levels? Uh, how Qu- loud do you quiet, like to Quiet, quiet, quiet. So this is uh, something that um, I'll tell everybody. Um I toured on the road for 20 years. So I put my ears through 20 years of live sound. Um, anybody who ever came to a show that I mixed would be like, man, that, you know, I've had people say that was the loudest show I've ever heard. And it sounded so good. And it was so loud. So I don't want things to hurt. So I, but I do like it loud. So that being said, you know, I've done some damage to my ears. And um, I recently had, um, I recently just, my life changed. I got fucking allergies oh, no! and I started getting all this fluid in my ear and I couldn't drink water. My, my left ear or my right ear would clog up because I had fluid basically in my ear from allergies. So I went to the ear doctor and they put me through an audiologist and they connected all these things to me and 
Then they made me go and uh, take this test where they checked my ear response because my left ear isn't as good as my right ear. Well, I can tell you, my left ear, as a kid, I had swimmer's ear. And my left eardrum burst. It's Mm. always not been as good. But what's happened is I have a reference. I've heard it. I know it. Mm-hmm. So now I'm 54 years old. Um, I have a little tinnitus. I do. You know, it's not enough to stop anything I'm doing. It's not covering up listening or anything like that. But it now doesn't heal as fast. In other words, you know, 20 years ago, I'd do a show and the next morning my ears would ring. And by right. midday, it'd be okay. Right. Now that uh, doesn't work that way. So I don't listen very loud. So I'm mixing um, for a few minutes, getting sounds, 92, 95. That's pretty loud. Yeah. But that's just getting me, that's just make, making me feel the wind in my speakers, you know, pushing on me so I can feel it. Yeah. Um, and then I, uh, maybe, maybe an hour tops of a mix. Then I turn those speakers. I have a, I have settings on. I have an Avocet. I have settings. So I have my consoles wide open. And then it goes to an Avocet. Mm-hmm. So I've got click, 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 click. I've got these little red Sharpie dots on my monitor volume. I come down. I stop. I go get a coffee. Or I get a water. Go pee. Whatever. Take a break. I, I give myself five or seven minutes for my reference to reset. I come back, I listen at this, at this next volume. That's about 80 dB. Then I hit the dim and I go down to about 72 to 75. And that's what I spend the next two or three hours on. Now, just for it's clarity's really sake, quiet. when you talk about 80 or 70, 75, we're talking about the volume that comes out of the speakers if your mix is hitting that zero, you know, yeah. three to three area. Mm-hmm. Which it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. Very I've, quiet. I've found that stuff to be really helpful for me. Uh, I find it's so I've got the one aura tone and I'll put it in mono mm-hmm. and turn it way down. Sometimes I'll mute one of my NS10s and put it in mono and just mix off one at my low uh, have a set. That's the only way mono works. It doesn't actually have a dual mono, it's you know, a stereo mono. If you hit mono, it just goes to the left channel. Oh, really? Yeah. It goes left plus right on the left channel. I find it um, kind of weirds I, me out. I, I like to think my that console has a mono. I do that. Well, I like to think that mixing like that is helpful because it's really pleasant. Mm-hmm. You can listen so quietly, and you can make all these decisions about what you what you hear and don't hear mm-hmm. without feeling worn out by it. Yeah, know? well, that's the only way to. I mean, it's the only way to continue to work. I mean, if you listen loud all day, you're, you're making no good decisions after noon. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the first? Um, what are the what are the red flag decisions that you you um, know you're making decisions when they're too loud? Like what's stuff that comes up that that would be helpful for the rock stars? Well, I think the thing is is that you if you are listening too loud, your vocals vocals are always going to be too low in a mix, and guitar solos are always going to be too loud. Kinda. Hmm. Sometimes it's backwards, but I know that um, if I've been mixing on my NS10s for the last hour and I switch to the Pro X and the vocal sounds quiet, I know that my brain is lying to me. 
So it's kind of one of those things. Good time for a break. Good time for a break. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe talk about, you know, what, what would you encourage the rock stars as far as um, how often to take breaks and how they can be really useful? I try to do it once an hour, you know, once an hour for, for 10 minutes or so. Just go, just get and, away and from And the other the thing is for me, this is, a, this is actually kind of a big deal for me. Take a lunch. Take an hour. Walk away. Go get some air. Sit outside. Talk to your friends. We do that, you know, engineer lunch here. It's perfect. Yeah. Walk away. Go get a burger, you know, or whatever, a salad, whatever. Go get something. Or we'll order in often and I'll just be like, okay, cool. I'm not going to eat in the control room ever. And there's no need. Right. The, you know, music doesn't, if somebody calls you, my, my, my mentor, my good friend, Lou Whitney, used to say, there's no such thing as emergency recording. <laughs> there's no read. There's no need. I was thinking emergency about, Emergency recording doesn't, it doesn't ever need to ever happen. If it's an emergency, it shouldn't even be done. It should have already been done. Yeah. So, so look, just realize that you have a life. And, and you, you have an instrument in between, in, you know, on your head that goes to your brain that has to make decisions and has to do it for a long time, man. So watch the volume. And, and, you know, it's boring as shit. But, you know, real bands, they get it. You know, Clutch got it. They didn't need me to blast them to, to, for playback. You know, they get it. They go out there and they play and they play the band and then they come in and I play it back and it's 15 dB quieter on tiny speakers instead of them roaring in there like on stage. They go, yeah, man, that sounds cool. Because, you know, it's a different world. Yeah. You know? um, talk a little bit more about your typical sequence of events when you're mixing. You know, like how do you start? What kind of stuff you look uh, for initially? Well, and I, I'm again, I'm lucky. I have, I have a fantastic assistant engineer. Um, that, you know, that does all the work for me and he mixes everything for me. No, uh, what we do, the, the plan we have, like a perfect example of, of that is, um, last week we had an artist come in and they brought logic sessions. Well, they brought, they brought wave files. So while I was working on something else last week, uh, he spent the whole day building sessions for me in Pro Tools. And then we have, I have a, I have two consoles. I have two rooms. So one room is really just the prep room. And um, it's kind of like Mike's room. It's his room. So he has everything set up for him. So I have a Neotech desk, which is amazing fucking console. Uh, I love the sound of that desk. I actually love it more than the SSL, but it's a bitch to recall. Uh, it has some moving faders on it. The SSL doesn't. Um, I love that desk. Um, but it, we have the exact same setup, IO-wise. So it's a 2432 IO. Now I actually have more inputs on my big rig and I have another uh, 16 outputs on my bigger rig, uh, but this will do the setup fine and it'll import correctly. So he sets it up on the Neotech and he sets up where the room mics go and where the kick drum goes because they always go to the exact same spot for me. I have the same thing. It's not because I have preset EQs fixed or anything like that. I don't have any of that. It's just, that's where I want them. I want them where I know where they are every time. So strings are always going to be on these two faders. Vocals are always on these two faders. Background vocals are on these two faders. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
blah 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 blah. Yeah, because your, your brain's busy making music. Yeah, you yeah, don't I got to figure out where to yeah. look for stuff. And 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 the reality is, is that you know I still do tons and tons of work on a date rate. Most of what I do, ninety percent of what I do, mix wise, is date rate. And what you know, for those of you who haven't really thought about this or worked this out, there's there's here's your pluses and minuses. If you hire me or someone hires you, let's I'll say me, but you can use you. Somebody hires me as a day rate. They get me for a period of time. Now, I usually work 10 to 7. That's my time. Okay. That's a pretty good day. Sometimes I'll go to 8, but, you know, 10 to 7. Now, uh, in that day, most days, I mix two songs. Most of the time. So you can pay for me for a day and get two songs out of it. Okay. Now, do you get tweaks? No. Do you recalls? No. I mix on a desk. Recalls require recalls. Right. Or you can pay me per song. Now, that per song rate is a little more than my straight day rate. And that's per song. If that's the case, I'm going to spend all day on that song. And the artist and I, or the producer and I, are going to go back and forth. And we're going to make all these decisions that honestly, in a day rate situation, we might miss. All right. Now, sometimes people come in, they're like, I want to get you on day rate, but I just want you to do one song today. Like, okay, great. So, so then they get the day rate, full day rate, and they walk away with product. Do they get any tweaks? No. Do they get any recalls? No. If you hire me by the song, yes, you're going to get a couple tweaks. You're going to get a recall. Yeah. So that's part of the deal. And, and you just have to structure it that way so that the artist and the manager and everybody understands what the deal is. But you, what you have, what, what happens is you get a lot of people who come in with these huge sessions and they've got all kinds of notes and all kinds of tweaks. And it's just like, you should have just done it at song rate. Right. Instead of like, well, well, why can't you just tweak that? Then send it to me. Well, because I'm mixing on a desk. Yeah. But for you guys mixing in the box, you can do it easy. Now, does that mean you should do it? Because you can doesn't mean you should. It still takes time. I mean, you a, still have to, a, you have to use studio time to yeah, do that. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one for me. Doing. Like when I was mixing on the box, I mean, I, I, I remember getting all 15 songs of a record, getting mixed notes in yeah. the middle of something else that I'm doing. And people wanted it right then. Right. Like they expected it because I'm mixing in the box. I, I tell people up front, look, I mix on console, don't mix in the box. So any of these recalls are going to be recalls. So um, let's make all these decisions now. Do you have any tips for the rock stars about how to arrive at a per song rate that, that kind of can handle the, the eight song session versus the 108 song session? <laughs> well, I the mean, deal is, is that you, you have to figure out what your time is worth. So if you own a studio, whether it's in your house um, or outside your house, or you own a front storefront, you you need to make X amount of money a day to work. All right. To, to continue doing that and have a life. Okay. So you take that amount and you divide it by the number of available hours that you are willing to put into it. So if you're willing to put in 40 hours a week, which most of, most of us work much more. If you're willing to put 40 hours a week into it and you need to make, I mean, let's just say $3,000 a week. Okay, then you have to figure out what your rate time's worth. If you have to make $3,000 a month, well, that's not a lot of money. 
I know a lot of people who that's the reality. Um, for me to break even, that's not the right word. For me to clear my studio nut. In other words, pay the mortgage, uh, mortgage, rent, whatever you want to call it, insurance, Mike, my assistant, taxes, uh, loans on any gear or anything that I have, electricity, which believe me is a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, it's $11,700 a month Wow, for me. So that means I have to make almost $12,000 before I can take a penny home. Therefore, I've got to the point where my day rate is quite high. Right. But, and I work almost every day. I've worked, uh, I've worked uh, 13 of the last 15 days. Well, dude, we're glad you're here today. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I'm here today. We, we'd scheduled this a long time ago, but it just so happened that my console kind of blew up. Uh, it didn't blow up, but something broke. And we got it fixed yesterday, which was great. So Mike is actually at my place setting up for recalls. But, but back to what I was saying about Mike. So Mike has a room to, to his own. He sets everything up and then he brings it down and puts it on the desk. And what Mike does is Mike makes it so that I can hear everything and that I can put all the faders on my desk at zero because that's how I like to work. So that means a lot of times the Pro Tools say faders are all over the place, especially unless it's me, mm -hmm. all over the place. And, um, and put them on the fader. I can hit play and listen to the song. And what I will do is I'll hit play and listen. And Mike's already got it set so the vocals got the right gain to the drums based on the Neotech. The SSL is no different, really. Um, and the first thing we'll do is it's, if it's in the middle of a mix, is we'll just play those tracks back on top of the old mixes settings. Because every now and then serendipity happens and really cool shit pops up. Right. Like maybe there's a PCM42 stereo delay that was on the last song's guitars but this time there weren't so many guitars. So now there's a whirly and now the whirly's going at the wrong time. But if I just move the time a little bit, or if I leave it at the wrong time, it's great. Yeah. So serendipity happens. And, and what happens in, when you have a desk is that happens all the time. All kinds of cool shit happens because it's wrong. Habit doesn't happen with Pro Tools. You open a session, there it is. You open the session again. Now you can do this import session data but that doesn't even really work unless you set up a bunch of oxes as your console and right. you mix on those oxes and you hide all the other tracks. That's the only way it really works. You have to have a console of sorts to get this kind of vibe that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I went through this path. I tried that. Like I tried, okay, cool. I'm going to set up a 24-channel mixer in oxes and it's going to be 24 stereo channels. And that is going to be my mixer. Right. And I'm going to just automate those and I'm going to have channels like EQ on each channel, just like it's on a stereo channel or on a channel on my desk, a mono channel on my desk. And that all that tabbing around and the way the Huey and the Pro Tools and all that even hiding, it was a little less cool back then. Yeah. It just wore me out. And so trying to make a record from song to song sound like a record is tough without a console. Mm. You know, so, but that's how I start. I start like that. I listen to the whole thing and then I decide in my head, usually by just trying a couple things about a vocal treatment for later and how that works. And then I turn the vocals off. And then 
I'll start listening to the band and what, what is important? What musical thing happens here that makes this song special? What's the hook? Is it a vocal hook? Okay, cool. Then, then we have a, a band that's kind of a, a music bed. Do you know what I mean by that? I don't mean that to be like, you know, it, but it's a music bed. And the hook, the thing that pulls you in is the vocals. Okay, cool. So let's get that sounding really good. Now let's put the vocal in and get that sounding good. You know what I mean? Okay, cool. Great. But maybe it's a musical part. Like like on this track we did, I did a couple of days ago, it had this little, I call it a taxi line. Like the, the whirly and taxi. It had this little bum that was made done with a Wurlitzer. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's the hook. That's the that's the line of the song. That's the thing that people are gonna walk away singing. You know, it's been five days ago. I can still sing it. Yeah. That's a deal. So you make sure that's featured. Yeah. Now that hook is the chorus, vocals. But that line keeps coming up all through this verse of the song. So yeah, that's smart production. So now take that and make that a thing and put it in its space and have it so it's not too loud, but like everybody knows the chorus. You know, I think it's, um, I walk to the river. You know, so so that whole or something, whatever, whatever the lyric was, was reinforced through the whole verse. Awesome. So the hook. So that's the important thing. Okay, cool. Now, this this particular song we're talking about was produced where it had a build and a bridge. Build, 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 build. Ba 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 boom. Chorus again out. Okay, cool. Build, 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 big. Boom, 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 boom. Cool. Great. All right. What if that fill, what if that bar was five? So in other words, now you get this uh, falling off the cliff feel, right? And take out the pickup. Mm -hmm. So it goes, you know, so then it comes back in. And okay, cool. I there's a guitar part here. Let me stretch this out, and then let me do this, and I'll stretch that out and time stretch and expand a little bit so it it goes, you know, and it right. kicks in. Yeah. And I just did that, played it for the band, and they were just like, "Oh man, that's awesome!" So now you've created a second hook in the song. It doesn't always work. <laughs> I just I'm mixing a record. I'm recalling it today, where the intro of the song did nothing. It was just chords for eight bars. But later in the song, there's this cool 16-bar tag that's the same chords. So I put the eight first eight bars, the first seven bars of that tag at the intro, and then the last bar, the, res the, re the resolving bar, onto the end is the eighth bar, and then just made it work. So now the song goes... Da -na 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 -na. You know, oh, there's a solo or something. I don't even remember it. And and then and then da -na -na, vocal da -na. first had this great intro, and I sent it to them, and they're like, "We hate that. <laughs> we would have done that if we wanted to do that." And I was like, "Okay, I'll undo that." It's a good tip, though. It's a reminder that there's a lot of times. You can learn to grab elements from yeah. later in the song and oh, bring yeah. them forward. Well, and as a mixer too, people come to you because they want a certain thing. You know, they yeah. want they want something that you're doing 
Um, you know, and that can be good and bad. I mean, I've, I've got a, I've got a great, you know, young Vance engineer horror story about a very famous mixer who kind of, in my opinion, destroyed a record that I did. And, you know, even the band now is like, yeah, that was wrong. That's <laughs> so wrong. But, um, you know, it's sometimes they can, it can go awry and yeah. you can take yourself too serious. Well, uh, I that's, did it. you know, it's like what F Reed says, you know, if you're not, if you're not getting fired, you're not, yeah, yeah, trying exactly. you're not trying hard enough. Exactly. Well, he's right. He's totally right there. So, um, all right. So last question, Vance, we've been going mm -hmm. for a good long stretch. Mm -hmm. We really appreciate that. You know, we talked about something earlier that maybe we want to talk about, but, sure. and that's the backup thing, yeah. but it may be too in depth. Maybe well, if we can record it as a sidebar. Maybe we can. And and the thing I wanted to ask was, you know, here we are. You've made this mix. You're you're delivering. Uh -huh. You're turning it in. What what notes do you want to give the rock stars about file naming? How do you deliver things? How do you keep things organized? Uh, that okay, this is this is really important. Um, I got yelled at um, by Joe Ciccarelli, who's really good at yelling at you about things. Um, he's not a guy who goes, oh, Vance, I really want to talk to you about this. He's more like, what the fuck? Why the fuck would you, you know? And that was because I was labeling my mixes as like mix one, mix two, mix three. And he's like, he's like, I don't know what that means. So he, he's like, I don't know what mix one means. I don't know what mix two means. I don't know. You got to label these better. I don't know what they are. What's the, what's the, what's mix one vocal up? I go, well, that's the first mix I did vocal up because that doesn't mean shit to me. So like, okay, so let's make things stupid. The funny thing is, is that he was right. Now, I was pissed at the time because, first of all, nobody, I, I don't like being a 47, 50-year-old man being yelled at by another man. That makes me angry. But he was right. So what I do is we still label things mix one, mix two, whatever. Yeah. But, but, but a mix, the difference between a mix one and a mix two is, Mix one, I did all at one time. Mix two, I recalled. It's a tweak. Okay? The master mix, like the mix we say that's the master, is labeled. And this is exactly like, let's say the song is called Hello. Hello. This would be my labeling. Hello. Full title of the song. Mix one. Master. And then the date. Here's the tricky one. The date. 18, 10, 30. 18, all right. 30. Right. Oh, 8, I see. 10, year. 10, 30. Why? Because those mixes will go in will go in sequential order if you sort them. Because the last the, day the of the date is at the end, too. Is the day. So 18, 10, 30 is lower then 181101, because it's just math. The computer does weird things with text and math, but this is just text. Text adds up to math, ASCII mm -hmm. math. Mm -hmm. So this is a George, that's a George Massenberg deal. So, so my master mix is going to say, hello, mix one, master, 18, 10, 30, because that's today's date. All right. Then anything that I've done to it is afterwards. So I print a heated mix, which is purely just a uh, L2 plugin, plus or minus seven, it's plus seven dB set at zero. So it's, it's just really just a leveler, just brings the level up. Faux master, 
and then I print the, the master. The heated master, that heated mix, never becomes a 9624. It's always only 44124 or MP3. It never becomes a heated master. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is that so nobody accidentally uses it? I, even though master? I printed it 96, it's so no one uses it as a master. Yeah, yeah. I printed it 96. It's there, but okay. So I have a print bus. My console comes out, goes to my 2192. My 2192 comes back into Pro Tools, gets printed one, 26, you know, 9624. And then the other goes through this, uh, this heater, this L2 plugin, and prints with the plugin on it. So I have a heated one and a non-heated. So mine will say, hello. Mix one, master, today's date, 18, 10, 30, heated. And then the other one will not say heated. Now, the next version I'll do will be an instrumental. Hello, mix one, I-N-S-T, today's date, heated. The next one will be the vocal up. Hello, mix one, vocal up. Now, vocal up would be an all vocal up for me. So sometimes I'll say all, but sometimes people ask for a lead vocal up. So that would say lead vocal up. The next one's going to be lead vocal down or whatever. Then I'll do uh, vocal stem, lead vocal stem, background vocal stem, done. Um, you're not mixing in the box, so you're not having to rename Pro Tools sessions for each of these no, things. No, no, I don't do Pro Tools sessions. These are all just in my session. They're all in my session. I just It's just the just mix one, my labeling for my session would be hello vp mix uh vp mix one today's date okay so then if we come along later we'll recall it hello vp mix two and the day's date well dude i love that thank you for sharing that and um saying hello so many times is a great way for us to say goodbye goodbye. on the podcast exactly. (laughs) exactly Um, thanks again so much for joining us it. on Recording Studio Rockstars, cool. dude. It's great to hang out with you. Absolutely. And thanks for giving us so much of your time. Uh, you too. got it, man. No worries. Thanks, um, Rockstars. Let the Rockstars know again how they can find you online, more about it's you. Super and- easy. For me, the best way is uh, my website, vancepal.com, is really just like a phone number, email ad- address. But um, if you go to, you can look me up via Wikipedia. I'm on Wikipedia. You can look on there. discography and all that. Um, my management company is... Uh, Global Positioning Services, they have really an actual sort of real website for me. I'm on Twitter, Vancelot, uh, at, at Twitter, you know, Twitter, that's my handle, at Vancelot. Um, Facebook is not a particularly great place to get a hold of me because I kind of just keep it to friends and family. Um, I'm on Instagram, but I am the worst Instagrammer ever because I just don't post a lot of pictures. I have kind of uh, issues with people who post pictures of every session they're on. Um, and it's partially because I did eight and a half years with Jack White and having to sign an NDA every day. So I kind of don't really do it. I only really sort of post things. I post things via Twitter that sometimes go to Instagram and that's where I'll post about records I'm working on or things that I'm doing. So that's kind of my way to get a hold of me. Twitter's kind of it. Awesome. And uh, Rockstars, of course, will include links to stuff we're talking about and we may have some downloads yep, there for yep. you too in the show notes on your mobile device or just at rsrockstars.com. And uh, Vance, thanks again, thanks, dude. Lidge. I thanks, Lidge. I'll me. see you at the next uh, engineer luncheon. Yeah, I think it's in uh, about a week. <laughs> maybe maybe not by the time this is out. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Thanks, dude. Cheers. 
Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lyd Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music